Welcome to the Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This week's theme is The Good Fight, and Alan and I will be curating a mixtape featuring songs that remind us to never give up. How you doing, Alan? Oh, well, I'm standing upright. Are you so fighting the good fight? <laughs> I'm, I'm doing my best. I'm not uh, giving up? No, I, school this year has been... Uh, it's it's not school, so I you know the interaction with my students is so limited, and it, I mean the the morale is down. I mean this playlist it it speaks true. I mean, it's been a very difficult time to just not throw in the towel and call it quits. So well between between COVID of course and between um, all the protests and the um, the social justice demonstrations this summer. As well as the election season, oh, yeah, very contentious. Um, these these songs all fit um, they, they those do. different scenarios. Yes, they do. Now, I, I just feel my heart goes out to my students this year. It's just been so so heart wrenching to to see them in their masks and socially distanced. And it, the classroom is just you know it is a constant struggle. And while my songs are not school related, I mean that was always in the back of my mind. Uh, you know, preparing for for today's episode, but you, but you're absolutely right. I mean, we have what's going to to be, I'm sure, a very vitriolic election, and and you know the the protests continue, shootings continue, the the COVID numbers are going up, and I suspect they're going to go up, go up higher now that schools are in session. So it, it's this is the year for this playlist. So yeah, it, this is a playlist. I hope um, maybe keeps people going. Hopefully, this is one people return to. Yeah. Throughout the year, and hopefully as we come out of this darkness, because it really does feel like, especially going into winter now, and it's we're 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 in darkness, and I'm not sure that we see the light yet at the end of the tunnel. Boy, I I hate to be so pessimistic. <laughs> That's why we need these songs. So let's start down here, and hopefully by the end, we've uh, elevated our mood somewhat. Oh yeah, we'll be singing kumbaya and swaying to and fro. Um, <laughs> my, my criteria for these songs were just we're inspirational songs that remind us to stand up for what's right and to never back down. That's it. I, they're all, you know, they're all songs of, of, you know, just trying to, to achieve victory in whatever purpose uh, that may be. And a lot of mine are very, I don't want to say generic, but, but they're very open-ended. They can be applied to yeah. very nearly any that, situation. That's for the most part, my songs yeah. as well. Yeah. So, no, I, I, I agree. I really think that, you know, our listeners, if they stick with us for this episode, we may just, you know, give them that little boost that they need through the songs that we select so shall we get started let's do it i think i start you first because i wrote that down you did <laughs> and then i wrote it down because i didn't trust you to remember <laughs> so you are first this week all right well i'm going to start with kind of a, a local band at least local to ohio okay. you know we can debate in ohio whether or not uh, the, in northeast ohio and you know south uh, i guess southwest ohio or southeast ohio is the same thing um a lot of people want to say Cincinnati is basically just part of Kentucky, but that's probably not fair. Um, but but really is. I mean, you could divide the state somewhat in that way, but but I still claim Cincinnati. Oh, I do too. My, my son's down there right now at the university. So, I um, yeah, I'd like to think he's in state. Well, they, they do the same thing in Toledo. Oh, yes, I mean, of course. Toledo yes. is you know, Detroit, you can, you Michigan. Can, you can so. fracture the state. But this is a band uh, the, from Cincinnati. Okay. And this is a band that, uh, boy, was this close, and I'm making a gesture with my hand of a <laughs> with my fingers like I, real I, I see it folks this, this close uh, I think to superstardom and didn't quite make it uh, they had uh, I believe four studio albums before they went on a hiatus the good news is they uh, have just released two singles this uh, 2020 one good thing to come out of 2020 I and there's an album coming up drawing a blank I, uh, you may not have even heard of them okay Foxy Shazam I have not heard of them oh my gosh Alan 
I'm glad we're starting off with Foxy Shazam because I know you're a Queen fan. Oh, yes. And I'm not saying, I think it's unfair sometimes to make a direct comparison to another artist, okay? And, uh, and Eric Nally is, is not Freddie Mercury, okay? But the vocal prowess, vo- the vocal gymnastics, the, uh, the charisma, the uh, interaction with the audience live, uh, the, the vocal dynamics and range of, of this lead man's performance is Freddie Mercury-esque. Really? Yes. It is just it, and the songs are big. I, mean, I had not had an opportunity to see them live because when I discovered Foxy Shazam, you know, I don't keep up on a lot of modern music. Right. Um, at the time, they were on hiatus, and I was all excited because they announced a show in Cincinnati. Not that I would have been able to go because it sold out instantly. Right. Because uh, they have a huge cult following nationwide, but uh, and they had to postpone that, of course. But someday, you know, I, I've seen videos and YouTube videos. I mean, we're talking just. Maybe even Springsteen-esque in the energy that they bring. Really? Because the, a lot of members in the band. You're, you're hyping them up. Like, I know. <laughs> it, it, like, in a very grandiose. And when I say Springsteen-esque, I, it's not the same. It is, it, it's alternative rock, but it's not you know Springsteen blues-based rock, okay? It's alternative-based rock. Okay. But I just mean in the energy and the power and the performance that they bring live. And like Springsteen, sometimes it's hard to capture that in the studio. And yet, there's, I think their studio um, tracks are, are incredible. But even live, it unleashes a power that's just... Okay, so we have Springsteen's energy with, with <laughs> Queen's yes. har- harmonies and... I, I... At least, at least uh, Queen, Freddie Mercury's uh, performance. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's huh. Foxy Shazam. The song is called Unstoppable, which came out from their third album in 2010, Unstoppable. This is a song, however, even though most people in the country... Um, aren't familiar with Foxy Shazam or may not be familiar with Foxy Shazam. This is a song that a lot of people have heard because it's been licensed by a lot of um, televised athletic events, including the Super Bowl. This song was featured uh, on uh, maybe several Super Bowls. You know, when they have the outro music to a commercial oh, yeah. or at the beginning when they're announcing the team. So you may have actually even have heard this song. Lyrically, okay, it starts, My mother told me, poor boy be strong. Say, uh, some say I won't last. I say they're wrong. We won't back down this time. We won't back down this time. So, again, it can apply to any situation. Hmm. But it's a song about not backing down, about being strong, about remembering who you are, and just the, you know, just the, the title, Unstoppable. introduce some music to you because right. this is a song that I'm assuming you will not have although you without question know the song um, the name of the song is Eyes on the Prize okay um, and it has been performed by over 
over oh, it's, uh, it's, it's, hundred it's an artists. Old, it's an old yes. uh, African-American Ex- exactly, yeah. uh, civil rights anthem. Yep. Eyes on the Prize. You know, it was originally titled Keep Your Eyes on the Prize. It's a folk song, folks, that, that became influential during the American civil rights movement of the, the 50s and 60s. Um, it was, Dave already said it, it was based on a traditional folk song and hymn uh, that was titled Gospel Plow, and, and that song's exact origins are unknown. Um, you know, the, the traditional Gospel Plow, it, it sometimes went by the title Keep Your Hands on the Plow, and sometimes simply, uh, it, you know, it was titled Hold On. Um, the earliest references to the traditional Gospel Plow are, are from wildly different uh, sources as well. The first, actually, uh, that I found, it's from a... a a book titled English Folk Songs from the Southern Appalachians. Um, it was published in 1917, and it indicates that Gospel Plow at least dates back, uh, you know, to at, le- to at least the early 20th century. Um, the second reference is to a 1928 book called American Negro Folk Songs, which reveals that, that the, you know, at least one version of the song was known it can be traced back to to slave spirituals and therefore has African-American heritage. Um, you know, that makes sense. Lyrics for traditional American folk songs and African-American spirituals, they're so often changed and improvised and traded between songs by different artists and at different performances. Um, this was and, and is especially true in, in the call and response of African-American religious music. But it was Pete Seeger... Um, who first recorded the adaptive version that we know today. Um, you know, he recorded uh, the song in 1963. It's featured on his album, We Shall Overcome. And in the opening remarks to his first live performance of the song, he himself noted the malleability of, of American and African-American folk music. Um, Seeger also explained, and just to give you some history, that, that the leading Paul and Silas stanzas which reference, of course, the book of Acts, you know, chapter 16. Uh, they were already present in the traditional hymn, spiritual, what, whatever it may may have been. But additional stanzas in the modern civil rights version were often attributed to Alice Wine. Um, but we now know that she did not actually compose any of the lyrics herself, though she is credited with passing the phrase Eyes on the Prize to Guy Carawan, who then incorporated into the into the song and changed the title from Keep Your Hands on the Plow to Keep Your Eyes on the Prize. As it turns out, no artist can historically be credited for the song, you know, the original song or the civil rights version that came from it. But but soon after Seeger's recording, Mahalia Jackson, Odetta uh, Holmes, Bob Dylan, Mavis Staples, they all recorded and Bruce performed. Springsteen with the... Uh, yeah. Get, is that the version you chose? No, I didn't, oh, okay, I didn't okay. choose Springsteen, but I'm, I'm getting there because Springsteen the plays Seeger, a huge the role sessions. In, okay. in where I'm going. All right, gotcha. Um, yeah, basically all, all of the, you know, the, the monumental artists from the 1960s, uh, you know, political advocates, cha- uh, advocates for change in, in music, they all performed versions of the song and, and, you know, it quickly became the unofficial anthem of the civil rights movement. Eyes on the prize. So, yeah, uh, in 2006, Seeger's recording of the song was memorialized, of course, by Bruce Springsteen on his 14th studio album, uh, We Shall Overcome the Seeger Sessions. Didn't go with Springsteen. What I did instead, I went with uh, a a band that was wholly inspired by Springsteen's Seeger Sessions. Oh, interesting. And from uh, from his, his album, they themselves decided to form a band. 
Okay. Okay. Uh, they so they formed the band based on the secret yes. sessions. Interesting. Yeah. Um, it, it's a husband and wife team. His name is Andy Como, and uh, her name is Don Lewis, and they formed their band. Uh, it's called Vod and the Villains. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Vod hmm. and the Villains. Uh, Como and, and Lewis, you know, they they're from Los Angeles. They already had uh, very successful careers as musicians and actors. But yeah, in 2008, they were so moved by Springsteen's Seeger Sessions that they decided to create a large ensemble musical family of their own. Uh, they they shared a love for old traditional folk songs and they that they had both known growing up. And you know, they, they became inspired by how the music had lived for so long and and retained not only a relevance. Uh, but but an ability to galvanize large groups of people. So at first, they performed their covers of Springsteen's covers, <laughs> okay? And they performed them every single weekend. Um, for the first few months of performing, they had more people on stage than in the crowd. <laughs> yeah. um, they then accompanied a circus in Los Angeles, okay, uh, where, where they... Uh, they they accompanied them and they performed their folk songs under the big top. The circus, though, it wasn't a traditional outfit. We're not talking P.T. Barnum. Um, it, it, it advertised itself as a mix of film noir and Cirque du Soleil. And Como and, and Lewis, they, they played with them for an entire summer, but then they decided they wanted to do their own thing and, and more of it. So in this way, Vod and the Villains was, was born. Uh, Como and, and Lewis, they, they use... They use their stage names. Uh, he is Vod Overstreet. She is Peaches Mahoney. I, I, you know, I, I know. I've heard, I think I've heard of them. Yeah. Well, I, I, I stumbled upon them by accident a few years ago, and I. I is there a song that that, that I would know? Because I'm sure, I'm sure oh, that I've come across it's, them somewhere. It's very likely. They, okay. They've I, been doing I, this for a long time. Now. I may think of that as you go. Um, but yeah, they, uh, they they formed Vod and the Villains, and it, it's a New Orleans themed musical stage show, actually. It features a 19-member jazz troupe. And, you know, they began setting new arrangements to old songs and new. And they all, all their songs draw upon the thematic message of the show's stolen motto, which is, every saint has a past, every sinner has a future. And, and according to reviews, the result was visceral. I mean, it was uplifting, it was over the top, uh, just a production with the unmistakable message of, of hope, duality, acceptance, inspiration. Um, if I ever make it to LA, I've, I've never been to Los Angeles, but if I ever make it to LA, I am going to see their show because watching the videos and listening to their albums, I, I, I've just become this huge fan of, of this troupe. And it, it's hard to, to pinpoint or define their music exactly. Um, on the one end, they're, they're this flamboyant, uh, cabaret infused New Orleans esque big band jazz ensemble with 19 members. Um, yeah, including five singers and four dancers. Uh, on the other end, though, they, they instill a grand old Opry evangelical blues and gospel vibe, um, yet with, with sin and mischief, you know, in their very core. Um, and they, in their own words from their website, this is actually from the website, it says, and I quote, Vod and the Villains was born out of whimsical dreams, glitter, and boa feathers. Uh, the big show is a 19-piece orchestra and cabaret, and has evolved over year over the years from a folk band singing traditional tunes to an originally voiced genre bending spectacle commonly described as Americana Noir meets Moulin Rouge. At once seedy and inspiring, gritty and sublime, bring your wretched souls, your sins, and your dancing feet, they will save you and you will never be the same. Your eyes open. 
so Gen X, um, especially 1980s Gen X, there was a practice that I'm not sure is even used much anymore, a marketing practice um, that's hmm. not used much anymore, but was used widely during our youth. Okay. And that was to promote a film with the um, simultaneous release of a song by a band. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. And if you were lucky enough, and if that song did well and the movie did well, then you'd have subsequent singles from that soundtrack, original songs being released. Assuming they were good. <laughs> well, in some cases, <laughs> then, like I'm thinking like the Rocky Four soundtrack. Uh-huh. Had yes. several hit oh, yeah. singles. Living in America, Burning Hard, Hearts on Fire. Oh, Footloose yeah. was an example. Yes, it was. Of this. Uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Uh-huh. Uh, was an example. So there are lots of these kind of mega soundtrack albums that produce lots of original singles. Oh, yeah. In fact, one of our listeners, uh, Steve Jansen, he he actually is still waiting for us to do a movie soundtrack Yes, and playlist. we will do that. And I, told, I, I actually messaged him back and said, uh, without question, we love the idea it'll be season two. But you're, you're right. I mean, the 80s, what a, I mean, it was just a, that was the decade for, for just power, you know, film soundtracks in and of themselves but I'm curious which well, one where you, are we headed here and you had a third tie in too with the music video yes right so if you had a, a single that may usually I think they would release it maybe a month before the film's release right okay the video usually had clips from the movie I'm thinking of like uh, Crazy For You with Madonna and um, that was from Vision Quest. Vision Quest. <laughs> yeah. right. Which I don't know that anyone actually saw the <laughs> <Right>. film. <laughs> that, that's one was, that was not successful right. in marketing the film. Uh, if the film's bad, the film, I'm not saying, I didn't see Vision Quest, so I'm not saying it's bad, but I'm saying if the film was bad, yeah. the song didn't necessarily redeem the yeah. film. I, you know, I, I know I saw it years ago, but I, I have no memory of it. The, the other big song from that one was Berlin. No More, yes. no more, no more Words. words. So. And, and I thought that was Top Gun. I think Berlin's, no, uh, or, Berlin. Oh, that was take my that breath. Take my, take breath, my breath away. Yes. Yeah. And so, yeah, you have times then when the the single was successful and the movie was a flop, and there were times where the single was not successful, but the movie uh, became a hit. And, and sometimes both. I think of like Back to the Future. Uh, obviously, Power of Love. Oh yes. You cannot separate that from the movie Back to the Future. No, Back in Time was not as successful, right. As a single. Okay. So I am going to talk about a song that was very popular, and the movie was a bomb. Wonder if we have a match. I, we'll see. What, what? Where are we going? We can't afford to be innocent, Alan. We have a match. Stand up and face the enemy. The legend of Billy Jean. It's a do or die situation. We will be invincible. invincible. And that's Benatar. from Pat Benatar, 1985, from Seven, The Hard Way. We have a match, and right. I, I never expected that one to be. And that's actually really cool. That's that one of we, the first songs that came to my mind no, when I, you said the good fight. Yeah, I, no, it same. I mean, I, it's further down my list, but yeah, we. Uh, at, Oh, and it's such an amazing song. Oh, yeah. But that, that movie was <laughs> Well, I got I to gotta be honest. I haven't seen the film. Oh, you've never seen it? Uh, I, did, I did read the Wikipedia summary of the movie, so I have a, an okay. idea of what it's about. It sounds like one of those that could have become a cult classic. I don't know if it is, if some people still... Yeah, I, but it didn't do well at the time, no, at least. And, well, and, you know, it... And the reviews were mixed. Oh, they, they were. Um, it, it it starred two Slaters. Two, they, not they, just one. Yeah. They, two Slaters. They weren't related. Helen and uh, Christian. Helen and Christian. And Yardley Smith, actually, who, who voices Lisa Simpson.
the song went to number 10 on Billboard, and uh, Benatar was nominated for a Grammy. Uh, but she made it clear that she does not like the oh, movie. She hates it. And and when she plays a song in concert, she expresses her disapproval for the film <laughs> yeah, itself. Does. The the album it didn't do well either. The album the song appears on Seven the Hard Way, and there was a time when Benatar was trying to maybe transition from some of her just you know pop. She she was a pop icon. Right. Um, I I will argue I will argue that Pat Benatar has the greatest vocal prowess of any female artist in the 1980s and maybe of all of rock and roll i i would agree i would say debbie harry is a very close oh i'd love deborah harry but i mean i mean pat benatar Benatar is operatic i mean she 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 could have gone a number of different directions with her voice and she chose pop music but uh just an incredible credible vocalist and i think she tried to want to transition to maybe more i don't know serious is the right word but just a different type of reflective reflective correct yeah mature you know. And so it was kind of a big push and pull with the record company. And then this song didn't really fit what she was trying to do, but she liked this song, so she included it. So I think this song is kind of a, a bittersweet song. And it also kind of marked kind of the end of the Pat Benatar, right? I mean, not that she stopped having hits, but it was near, this is close to the, was to the end. close of, to the end. Uh, she, of her, uh, uh, her hit Yeah, screen. because I, she still tours. I've actually seen her in, right. in a very small She and her venue. husband, I believe. Yeah. She and her husband. Tar- um, guitarist. I actually saw them of all places at a Panera. They, they actually, it, it was uh, Yikes. in the Cleveland area. They It was very intimate. They sold very limited number of tickets, but she and her husband just sat in a Panera. With, I, on, I mean, on, I figured like Peabody's on, or something, but yeah. not Panera. No, wow. it was at a Panera and, and they, they were just there on their six strings, you know, very acoustic set. And um, yeah, I, I, I assume that she continues to record Maybe. Yeah, I'm sure she does. Um, I, do, I kind of mean like her string of hit, right, yeah, hits but, in the 80s. Yeah. But like a lot of artists, that when their hit string dried Absolutely. up, they continue to create music and very good music in some yeah. cases. Well, I think, you know, and you're right. I mean, when she made that transition from the spandex-clad sex kitten to, to the very more mature and, and you know, prolific, uh, you know, songwriter, yeah, it, it definitely... Um, and you see that a lot. I mean, Cyndi Lauper went from, you know, two or three very successful pop albums. Now she's primarily a jazz singer right. and, and a very good one. But but yeah, I mean, artists, they do. They drop off when they make that transition. So, um, no, that is funny. I, I mean, I shouldn't be shocked because you and I, we're so similar in our taste. Well, I just remember that when the song came out and I remember seeing the video, which I'm sure had clips from the movie, um, it, it wasn't enough to get me to go see the movie. Right. But I just remember at the time thinking, wow, like, they must be fighting for something big because the song was so big and it, yeah. it was, ins- I didn't know what I was inspired to do, but it inspired me to at least feel inspired, I guess. Right. No, and I'm, so it's, a, it's a, one of those generic, uh, you can apply um, to any situation, whether it be political or, or athletic related or, you know, again, if you're feeling down and you put this song on, chances are you're probably going to elevate your mood oh, somewhat. You, absolutely. Yes. yes. Um, no, I, great choice it's one of my own i i wasn't sure we'd actually have a lot of we may have a lot of matches but i i, I don't know I, this was so it's all wide open this is so open there's less that, chance to have yeah. matches whereas you know magic was a little bit right yeah, more magic, specific yeah that was that that was bound to happen but um no very cool all right so i'm already gonna head to my my alternates list at some point um no, it is a great song. And folks, if you do not know, because Invincible, it's one of her songs too that's pretty much been forgotten, um, unfortunately. I mean, Love is a Battlefield, you know, Hit Me With Your Best Shot. These songs are timeless. They're, they're never going to, to go away. But Invincible is one 
I don't know that you ever hear it on the radio. I mean, it's just, you know, on the oldies. It kills me to call 80s music the oldies right, right. stations. But um, no, it, it, it is hands down one of my favorite songs. It's one of my favorite songs from 1985, for yeah, sure. Absolutely. Okay. Well, um, actually, I'm going to go ahead and now that I can use it, uh, there, there are some alternates that I just really wanted and I didn't really think I'd have an opportunity to include them. So right now I'm going to just get it out of the way. Um, my next song from my alternates list, uh, it was, it's actually, this is me and it's by Kiala Settle. And of course it comes from the soundtrack to the greatest showman. song, it's actually sung by Hawaii native Kiala Seto, uh, who portrays the bearded lady Letty Lutz in, in the biographical drama. Um, the Letty Lutz uh, portrayed in The Greatest Showman was in real life Annie Jones Elliott. Uh, she was an American bearded woman who spent much of her career with P.T. Barnum uh, in his greatest show on earth. Uh, Jones was known for her musical talents and gracious uh, etiquette, and she acted as a spokesperson for Barnum's Freaks. I hate to use that word, but um, if you were to see my notes here, it's, well, in, it's it, in quotations. It's a, the historical context. Yeah, historically, that's... yeah. So I'm going to use it a few more times. I just, I'm not a fan of the word. But um, yeah, this is me. It, it's, it, it is definitely a fight song for people who are just not accepted by society. You know, it, it's sung by Letty Lutz after uh, she and the rest of the circus trooper are barred from, barred by, rather, uh, Barnum from an after party that following Jenny Lynn's performance and the bearded lady, you know, she refuses to be cut down, uh, by the fact that the showman is embarrassed by them. And, um, Pesek has, has actually said that the song was really inspired by the group of oddities in the film and what they came to represent and what director Michael Gracie talked about them representing. I mean, these were people who had lived in the shadows their whole lives. And for the first time wanted to feel love and acceptance and, even when P.T. Barnum turns his back on them, they make they make a statement, not only to him, but to themselves. I mean, the song is just, it's a declaration that they love themselves for the first time. Um, what may be unfamiliar to the, to the listeners, though, This Is Me was also inspired in part by the struggles that Benj Pasek endured in his own life. Um, he, he explained to Billboard that, that, you know, he was a gay man who grew up closeted when he was a teenager, 
And he said um, that it was from his experience of the world telling him that he was not lovable, he was unwanted, something about him was broken. Um, you know, growing up like that, he, he felt like he had to fix himself or hide himself. And, you know, in the interview, he said, I, I think it's amazing to work on a song that you think is your own private struggle. And you realize that once you share a little bit of light on it, there are a lot of people uh, who sort of realize that once you shine a, a, a little bit of light, you know, um, you know, that they're they're actually huddling in the dark there, too. And. Um, you know, other people relate to that idea and they relate to that message and, you know, they, they find a sort of communion in the message. So, yeah, th- this is me at one best original song at the 2018 Golden Globes. And, and the victory actually meant uh, that Pasek and Paul were back-to-back winners because they had nabbed the statue in 2017 for La La Land's City of Stars. Um, but it was also nominated for best original song at the 2018 Oscars it lost, however, to Remember Me from, from the Pixar film Coco. Uh, but Settle's emotional performance, I mean, it's just, you know, it's an internal monologue that then, you know, rallies the entire troupe. And it's, it, it is just, oh, it's contagious. I, I just, I love this. I wasn't, I like The Greatest Showman. I, I did not buy into the hype like so many people did. But, but you know, this song, without question, is one of the greatest anthems um, uh, from film, definitely in the 2000s. I mean, it just, I, 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 I'm moved on every listen. So. Well, and this is where I'm, I'm a hypocrite because I haven't seen Grace Showman yet, despite the hype. As a huge musical fan, I, I should, but um, the, the fact that it was, and this is what's hypocritical because I love La La Land, I don't know, the fact that it was just a straight-to-screen musical and didn't appear first on Broadway made me have somewhat of a prejudice. Uh, you, but then La La Land <laughs> is the same way, so that makes no sense. Um. Yeah, <laughs> it makes no sense at all. So, <laughs> I will see it. I'm I'm very intrigued, and of course, I've heard a lot about the film. People have talked to me about it. I know that this song is an emotional, uh, you oh, know, yeah. climax you, of the movie. Have you heard? I, I I've I've re- never, I have not exposed myself to any. So you don't even know the song, okay. other than the fact that I believe it was nominated for an Oscar. So I probably was, heard yeah, the yeah. performance on the Oscar telecast. Yeah, so that she, would be the, okay. the most that I've exposed yeah. myself. Now it's it's definitely I'm. It's, it's just a rousing number, and it is a song, like I said, the rest of my list is, that, that can be applied to any situation. It's it's just, it's a wonderful song, so. Excellent. All right, well, I got to use that. I didn't think I'd get there. Well, um, sometimes in my list, I go through little um, segments or stages or, or, I don't know, where where a couple songs are in the same either genre or time period, and so this is my Gen X um, part of the uh, playlist or the uh, the mixtape, I should say. So we had Pat Benatar. Now we're going to go to a 1984. You could argue one hit wonder. I think we have another match, but we'll we'll see. Go 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 ahead. You got the right to choose it. There ain't no way we'll lose it. This is our life. This is our song. We have another match. We're not going to take it by Twisted Sister. Next to my list. Right, right, <laughs> the right album there. Stay Hungry. We didn't think we'd have a lot of matches, no. and we already yep. have two. No, we're not going to. Yeah. <laughs> it's their only top 40 single. Went to number 21 on the Hot 100. I Want to Rock didn't go top 40? It, it did not go top 40. Huh. I Want to Rock is the other song that people are familiar with. Well, and today I can't hear it without thinking SpongeBob. But, yeah, but, and yeah. it was also um, referenced in the video, which I'll talk about here as well, from We're Not Going to Take It. Right, but yeah. um, your vocalist, I love this, vocalist and songwriter Dee Snider, who uh, also uh, appeared for a season on The Apprentice, 
I don't know if you remember that season. I, I or not. do remember that. Yeah. Um, he, he he said there were two major influences on on the song. One was the band Slade, which I can totally see, and the other is the Christmas Carol, "O Come All Ye Faithful." Yes, I found, which I, really threw I, me for I, a loop. I found that when I did my research, but now I can kind of see the connection. Oh, yeah, I'm it's just the af- same. Yeah, I'm afraid I won't forget that connection. Well, here's the funny thing. I, I they they recorded. Uh, we're not going to take it to the melody of. O Come All You Faithful, and then they did a Twisted Christmas album. Yes, yes. Where they yes. performed O Come, ye Fa- o Come All You Faithful 2. Two, we're not going to take The, the yeah. melody I think I've actually maybe have heard that, yeah, but I didn't make the connection at the time from the original. I, yeah, well, I, I've never actually heard the Christmas album, but, okay. but finding it, I was kind of intrigued. So Yeah, it's, uh, the song uses lines from, from Animal House, of course, if you're an Animal House uh, fan. Yeah. Nita Meyer. Mark uh, Metcalf's character, Nita Meyer, who was the, um, I suppose he was... Was he the ROTC? ROTC. Yeah, yeah he's the um, one head uh, student he, head. Yeah, he had the horse that Belushi's character <laughs> Bluto was in charge of. <laughs> right. You know, cleaning the stable or no? It was Flounder. It was Flounder. Flounder. It was Ken Dorfman that right, right. had to clean the stables, and Belushi brought in the gun with the blanks, and the horse dies of a heart attack. Yeah. Who at the time Mark Metcalf, uh, I easily confused with James Wood for some reason. I feel like they looked similar. I don't know really? at the time. Yeah, hmm. because I remember then when the video for "We're Not Going to Take It," which you know stars Mark Metcalf. Um, playing a very similar role, although he's playing the father of the teenager. I thought I, I just I remembered it was George or it was um, James Woods. But huh. it's, it's not. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so you know the video is very slapstick. Uh, if you remember the video, it starts off, and of course the father is laying into his son, much in the same way that, that right. his character does in Animal House. And then the son, of course, rebels and, and says, "You know, I want to rock," which is the reference to their other single. And then um, begins to lip sync to the song where the kid and his friends begin to turn into different members of the band. Right. And then, meantime, slapstick ensues as, uh, you know, every possible fall down the stair, you yeah. know, get knocked in the face type of gag is used. Well, it really, the video was, I mean, Dee Snyder has said that the video was actually inspired by the, the Wiley Coyote Roadrunner. Uh, that makes sense. Right. All right, right. Um, it's, a, you know, it's a song about Teen Rebellion. Um, However, it's been used at sports stadiums, political rallies, uh, union strikes. In fact, recently, Trump used it. Yeah, and Snyder was one of the few artists who actually was perfectly, because of his time on The Apprentice. Well, yes and no. Well, he's he's friends with Trump. He's, well, he's friends with Trump, yes. and initially he agreed to it early on in the 2016 campaign. Oh, did he change his mind? That I yes. didn't know. Okay. But as Trump began to kind of define his actual political views, which... I would argue at the time he didn't have any until he was <laughs> right. found what stuck, but we won't go there. Yeah. But when, when Snyder began to realize the platform that uh, Trump was going to run on, he politely asked that he quit using okay, the song. Okay, see, I, di- I didn't find that. Yeah. I, d- I just found that he, he allowed right. Trump to use it. So. If, initially he did because of his time when they okay. changed his mind. Yeah. Um, no, it's, uh, you know, it, well, I'm going to add one one thing if I can. because Yeah, of course. Th- this song, um, what I love about Twisted Sister Okay, that they were—they never took themselves seriously, of course, and you know the dressing and drag and the like. It was uh, the act was you know it, it was shocking, I guess, to, to parents in the '80s, perhaps. But you know the kids—they, I think, we all understood, you know, that it was self parenting Well, yeah, people, and, and people a lot of parents, because because decent Snyder wore makeup, but right. I'm like, Kiss has been wearing makeup since exactly, you know, 1974. Yeah. Yeah. So, so well, what I loved though is that in 1985. I, I, do you remember the PMRC, the Parents Music Resource Center? That was Tipper Gore, I believe. Tipper that Gore, started yes. That. Um, it was led by Tipper Gore uh, and and the wives of other political insiders. Gore, of course, was married to to Al Gore, um, and th- they were the ones that pushed to get warning labels attached 
to albums with explicit lyrics, and it was a hugely controversial thing in the eighties. Um, they they really faulted especially Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, because a lot of teen suicides were blamed on the heavy metal at the time. Right. Um, but they included uh, "We're Not Going to Take It" in their list of the fifteen songs they deemed most offensive. What? Setting it for violence. So on September 19th of that year. Violence. Yeah, right? Because on, of the video? Exactly, yeah. On September 19th of that year, Tipper Gore um, and the other members of the group, they testified at a Senate hearing on the matter. And Dee Snyder testified in opposition. He And standing with him uh, in, in, cor- in court, you know, in, in, um, at, the, at the Senate hearing, John Denver was on one side of D. Snyder and Frank Zappa was on <laughs> wow, the other side. what a crew. Yeah. And, and what I love, I don't know if you've ever seen recordings, but Snyder, he just, he, he, he just ravages them. He's in a, I believe he's dressed up in a suit, right? Yeah, his hair's I mean, pulled back. Yeah, yeah. Hair's, yeah. yeah. So this is actually what he said. I actually, um, I took his words exactly because it's just, it's so powerful. He says... Uh, to the PMRC, you will note from the lyrics before you that there is absolutely no violence of any type, uh, either sung about or implied anywhere in the song. Now, it strikes me that the PMRC may have confused our video presentation for this song with the song with the lyrics, with the meaning of the lyrics. It is no secret that the videos often depict storylines completely unrelated to the lyrics of the song they accompany. The video we're not going to take it was simply meant to be a cartoon with human actors playing variations on the Roadrunner Wile E. Coyote theme, and each stunt was selected from my extensive personal collection of cartoons. You will note uh, when you watch the entire video that after each catastrophe our villain suffers through, in the next sequence he reappears unharmed by any previous attack, no worse for the wear. By the way... And this is where he just, he silences them. By the way, I am very pleased to note that the United Way of America has been granted a request to use portions of our We're Not Gonna Take It video in a program they are producing on the subject of the changing American family. They asked for it because of its lighthearted way of talking about communicating with teenagers. So it is gratifying that an organization as respected as the United Way of America appreciates where we are coming from. And literally, Tara Gore, she had nothing. Right. You know, it just silenced them. It made them look like fools in, in the publicly televised hearings. note too i you know in in 2018 in oklahoma um when the teachers went on strike mm-hmm. uh the, the teachers union they actually appropriated we're not going to take it yep. and and you know they, they were on strike over poor salaries lack of school funding but you know teach what, what i love about this is that teachers are commonly the target of the song right, right. <laughs> so here you know they marched on the state capitol music teacher you know 
Music teachers organized a performance, literally, that led to the song becoming their anthem. But it makes sense because many of those teachers, guess right. what? They were they students. Were kids when, when that song was out. Right. Made it big. So, um, yeah, none, another match. Yep. No, it's uh, that's funny. I, I sometimes can imagine if that organization still existed. To, and, and I, well, does it really? I know that the, the label well, still Well, the appears, labels are there. And they, but, they, won, they won their cause. But if but, that committee were around today, what they would say was some of the... Uh, well, when you get into the heavy gangster rap, and when you get in, I mean, it, it just—and that, that 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 was soon to follow at right, the time. Yeah, you know? oh, it was. Yeah, it was on the doorstep. But I, I don't know. When you look back at the songs that they were complaining about, though, they were so tame. Darling Nikki from from Prince, I thought. Well, Darling Nikki from Prince. I mean, I love the song. Yeah, but, but compared, but like you say, compared to comparatively five yeah. six years later oh, with yeah, some of the music yeah, that absolutely. was to come down, that that's, that was extremely tame. It was. I mean, it, it was filthy as hell um, which you know made it fun a lot of it was was implied Prince but it was implied and certainly it was not you know today they hope artists don't hold back I mean the language right you know you hear a clean edited version on the radio and it's just silence (laughs) half half the song is bleeped out in silence so um, yeah it, it my hell you know the times are they are changing so we have two maps surprise we have two matches we do okay well my next song um, I think that you know if and I don't I don't know if you have it, but for me, it would be blasphemy not to include it in a list of uh, songs for the good fight. Okay. The next song is by Kansas, and it is Carry On, Wayward Son. Um, I didn't even consider that one. Really? Yeah, for me, it was one of the very first songs that I thought of. Um, you know, Maybe I've misinterpreted the song all this time. I know it's based on the biblical parable, the uh, prodigal son. Well, in part, yeah. Okay. It is, right. in part. Um, it was. It's from their fourth album, Left Overture. Um, which not only propelled Kansas to international stardom, it, it also saved the band for the time being. Like many groups at the time, Kansas, they toured and they recorded relentlessly. But their first three albums were commercial failures, and the progressive style of their songs prevented them from substantial radio play. So they, they were prog rock, but they didn't have you know, a lot of the DJ support that the Genesis or Rush or you know, artists of that stature uh, Chethor Tall that, that they had. Um, so while he personally enjoyed the band, their producer, Don Kirshner, he gave Kansas an ultimatum. I mean, he gave them one last chance. He told them they had to produce a hit record or they would be dropped by the label. And overwhelmed and distressed with the, with the predicament, the band returned to their hometown of Topeka, Kansas to relax and begin writing for the next album. Um, lead singer and keyboard player Steve Walsh, who was the lyricist for the band, um, he just he he resigned uh, or conceded really that that he had nothing. I mean, he began suffering from writer's block, which hindered his songwriting contributions, and the stress placed on them by the label did not help. And so it was left up to the lead keyboard, or I'm sorry, the lead guitar player uh, and lyricist, Carrie uh, Livgren. Um, and Livgren, you know, he, he was trying to generate song ideas and lyrics and. He sat at his parents' home in front of the family organ and, and Livgren composed the music for what would become Carry On Wayward Son. Um, the lyrics were partially about himself and the struggles and pressures he was facing at the time with the band's career, you know, with, with you know, their career on the line. Uh, the piano interlude and accompanying verse, I mean, they express how happy the band's success had made him as well as how sad and fearful he was that it might possibly be over. I was soaring ever higher, but I flew too high. And yeah, the chorus, it expresses hope that everything will work out and that he must simply keep going. Carry on, my wayward son. There'll be peace when you are done, of course. 
and um you know it it just uh, it all came together and and in the end it was the group's first major hit and like their next one dust in the wind it was actually a last minute addition of the album uh carry on wayward son almost never never made the album the song um you know because it 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 was a last minute or or if you know it, it was added at the last minute um it actually contributed it was in part uh what inspired the album's title of left Overture, which so, i have on vinyl right over there yep i have it too um so Kerry livgren he wrote the song just two days before they started recording left Overture. And at that point, the band was polishing the songs they had. They weren't bringing in new ones. And, um, you know, he, he said to the band, I've got one more song that you might want to hear. Uh, and, you know, the band, they nixed him. They, they just said, no, we're, we, you know, we're done. We don't want to hear more songs. But he, he, was, he persisted. He, he played Carry On. And when hearing it, you know, they knew they had a hit. And they made, they eventually made it the lead track on the album um according to Livgren you know the song was not written to express anything specifically religious at all actually uh though it certainly expresses like you said spiritual searching and and the idea of the biblical prodigal son um but he himself uh then a few years later ascribed religious meaning to it although it was not intended at the time because Livgren he, he then became an evangelical Christian in 1980 and he said that you know his songwriting to that point was all about searching. And regarding the song, he explained, I, I felt a profound urge to carry on and continue the search. I saw myself as the wayward son, alienated from the ultimate reality, and yet striving to know it or him. And the positive note at the end, surely heaven waits for you, he said, seemed strange and premature at the time, but it, I felt impelled to include it in the lyrics. And then he, he said, you know, obviously it proved to be prophetic. You know, with with his uh, ascribing to fundamentalism and, and being reborn. So, you know, next to some of the progier moments in Leftoverture, Carry On Wayward Son really feels comparatively restrained and compact, even though it stretches out across nearly five and a half minutes. And you know, Livgren, Livgren's engaging storyline of a man embattled with the voices and visions in his head is driven forward by the guitar riffing, the organ swells, solos from nearly every member in the band. But, you know, the story might be slightly turbulent, but the, the music certainly jams. And, you know, the now fam familiar a cappella intro, you know, and, of of the song, I mean, it was it was the sonic hook that really kept Kansas um, from disbanding, from, from being dropped by the label. Carry on my wayward son, there'll be peace when you are done, lay your weary head to rest. Don't you cry no more I rose above the noise and confusion 
efforts to get a glimpse beyond this illusion I was soaring ever higher But I flew too high Though my eyes could see I still Yeah, the album, while met with mixed reviews by critics, was commercially successful. It, it went platinum five times. Uh, Wayward Sun peaked at number 11 on Billboard's Hot 100, and it gave Kansas the staying power it needed to keep producing records with Kirshner, you know, when, when the ultimatum was served. And, and further, it earned Livgen the reputation as one of the most respected musicians and lyricists in rock and roll. And nearly 45 years later, Carry On Wayward Sun is one of those tracks that clearly belongs on any list of the greatest classic rock songs of all time. Oh, so, yeah. Part of the um, canon. Yeah, so I, it, to me, it was it was kind of a no-brainer because the whole song is about searching, trying yeah. to find, you know, what it is you're looking for. I mean, it, it's you too. You know, still haven't right. found what I'm looking for. But um, but no, it, it you know, it, so much of overcoming your the trials that await you is just trying to determine where you're going, where you've been, what you want. And and to me, that that's the essence of the song. So... Great pick, great song. All right. Never, I didn't didn't connect the dots there, but it works. Yeah, perfect. All right, let's. Uh, I'm going to keep with my my little mini theme here of uh, '80s. We're still on Gen X. Are you about to take another one? Gen of X songs? '80s, and this is the last of of the ones that I'm going to bring okay. up here. Came from 1981. Okay, 81. You said that we would be. You know, what I think you said something about playlist mal- malpractice by not including that song this applies here okay i'm pretty sure we have a, a third match the, the biggest probably cliche song i could choose but it has to be on here we have a third match and i love this song yep some will win some will lose some were born to sing the blues oh the movie never ends it goes on and on oh and we on don't have a match on. i was not thinking journey yes i didn't i didn't even think about journey for this episode i mean don't stop believing if you're going to talk about inspirational songs huh. and not giving up there is no i understand the song originally and literally is simply about not giving up on love right but that has but, been applied but that, but that outside of that yeah. original theme in so many different ways i I can't, you know, in, in, in making my list, I never even thought about yeah, this song. Yeah. So it, it we, just, that's why we do this yeah. together. It is the best-selling digital track from the 20th century. Yes. With over 7 million copies sold in the United States. Um, the song itself in the 80s, in 81, never hit number one. It went to number nine, which isn't bad. I mean, that's the no, top 10 hits great. Top 10. But yeah. I don't think anybody in 1981 would have ever thought that of every song from the Gen X era, this song would be the most enduring of all of them. I remember in college, I had a copy of uh, Journey's Greatest Hits, and I liked all of the songs until my girlfriend, my wife now, but girlfriend at the time's neighbor in the dorm played it incessantly, and I got so <laughs> sick of the songs, I had to take like a 10-year break from Journey. But at the time, I never would have said that song stood out among the other songs. Right. And it wasn't until, you know, right about, you know, the next generation came along, and you have it appearing on like the OC, obviously the finale of The Sopranos, Glee, Glee. the oh, musical yeah. Rock of Ages, 
that this song became and I'm only naming a few there are probably 15 other I can oh, name oh it's been used that this song became embraced by the millennial generation in, in, in a bigger way than we ever embraced it yeah it became one of their songs and it didn't even come from their generation so no, you're um, right. and, and it and when you go back, I guess I kind of blame myself for not even really understanding or realizing at the time how different it really is structurally from other Journey songs, right? You start with a really long opening piano riff, and then you have this unique kind of combination of verses, instrumental breaks, pre-choruses, choruses, and I think it's that style in some ways maybe make it made it a little more ahead of its time. It's it, it, obviously progressive rock has been doing stuff like that forever, right? But it, but in a pop song. Uh, that was that condensed um, helped it maybe endure I just never thought about the song for this for this episode. I'm kind of amazed that it flew right right by me. Um, but no, you're right. And well, and Steve Perry's you know vocals. Oh, well, where I said Pat Benatar was the greatest vocal of the '80s, uh, female Steve uh, Perry is the greatest it, male vocalist. Yeah, I would I, say of the '80s. I would. My say, I, I would probably agree. Yeah, and you know, I've heard. Now, first of all, I've not followed Journey since Steve Perry's departure. I've heard that the the, the new um, lead singer, which they found on YouTube, I believe, uh, from halfway across the world. I've seen him live several times with their you, new lead singer. Yeah, because yeah. I've heard he sounds, I mean, if you close your eyes, it's Steve Perry on the stage. Sounds it's, great, it's yeah. It's that, right. you know, identical. But this is where my musical snobbery comes in. I refuse to see Journey live because it's not Steve Perry. Right. And, you know, even if he sounds, it's much the same way as Queen. I'm not going to go see Queen with Adam Lambert, you right. know, but you, but you'd see a band with a different guitar player or a different drummer. I know, and that that's the, that's, <laughs> I know, I know. that's the hypocrisy. But you're right. The, the, no, it's not a really hypocrisy because the front man um, brings about with it so much more. And I'm not saying that every part of a band is integral, but when we think of the, the that's what that's why a front man or front woman is is, is out front. Yeah, no, because that's true. they they are the personality of the band. Yeah. And like, and sometimes you get that with a guitar player, like right. Slash and so forth. But for the most part, that front person is the personality of the band, and that's very hard to replace. And I will say, the only reason I've seen them two or three times live, it's not because I wanted to see Journey live. It's because those summer tours were like one time it was Pat Benatar, Doobie Brothers, and 
Lover Boy and, and right. I don't know, there's several of them and Journey is usually the headliner in those tours and Blossom Music Center here in Ohio is an outside venue yeah. and we get a bunch of teachers together, we get a party bus. Love Blossom. And you go up on the lawn and you hang out and you listen to 80s music all night. So that's the experience of, of Journey. I didn't necessarily pay to see gotcha. the new Journey. Well, this this summer, and it was obviously postponed and or canceled, I'm not sure, I didn't, I didn't have tickets, but um, Journey was coming back to Blossom but they were not actually the, the lead or, or they, they were not the, the, the headliner. The headliner. They were performing with uh, the Pretenders, Correct. Christy Hind, and right. the local and, local and, band, and who I I almost bought tickets for that. Of course, I I, I actually, was planning on going. Yeah, I actually have tickets to four concerts that were canceled this yeah, summer. Right. But I was I thought about buying tickets to that one because just seeing Christy Hind in Cuyahoga Falls, right. which is although we did see her in Cleveland. We did. Yeah, she Hall, was a so. part of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, you know, induction concert. Yeah. Um, so, all right. No, very good. All right. Well, my next one, one thing that I discovered, I have a lot of newer songs this week, which I did not um, realize until I'd made my list. But uh, here's yet another one. Um, it is a song by Florence and the Machine, mm-hmm. who, you know, is, uh, with every new album, I just become a bigger fan of, of uh, Florence Welch. I mean, she is just there's nothing she can't do Good vocally. Yeah. Um, the, the song that I chose is titled Shake It Out. Um, you know, it was the second single from the band's second studio album, Ceremonials. And, you know, Florence Welch confessed, uh, you know, she said, I've been a fool and I've been blind. I can never leave the past behind. I mean, the, the lyrics are really about someone living with deep regret and living in the past and trying to shake it out, as, as the song goes. And, you know, it, it's alongside a melody, which includes organs, earthy drums, and bells amongst its instrumental lineup. And then shake it out, shake it out, she belts over crashing cymbals and glittery synths on, on the chorus. And the result is just this good old-fashioned knees-up of a song that, you know, wouldn't be out of place at an English pub, you know, really. Yep. But, you know, the, the huge tribal drum hits that drive the track from the onset and Welch's voice in its peak form throughout... It, it, it nearly spills over the edges of the song. And she clearly, you know, she, you know, Florence, Florence Welch just, she clearly has a lot of weapons at her disposal. But Shake It Out reveals pure adrenaline as, as her most powerful. Um, the problem is, well, it's not really a problem, but, but you know, with, with all that stadium pop energy, um, it's probably a sure bet that some listeners, those that are music first, especially, I'm not calling anyone out there, uh, that some listeners miss the point that Welch is actually trying to make in the lyrics. Um, because in keeping with the band's often dark mythological theme, uh, a close listen reveals a song that's very steeped in the imagery of exorcism, actually. Hmm. And, you know, in, in its attempts to escape the long nightmare of regrets and past failures. It, it makes sense because after all, Welch has often compared her, her British alt-rock meets theatrical drama offerings to a spiritual rite. And she has uh, said that, you know, her music, she feels it compelled to make sure that it, it is euphoric because she said it's a way of battling her words. So the music often does not necessarily accompany the, you know, the lyrical, you know. Much like the Smiths. Yeah, yeah. Very, very similar. Um, and, you know, she says, uh, or she has said many times that, um, that her music you know, is like an exorcism. I mean, because it, she beats it out with drums, shaking out her demons, and that, you know, her music is so visceral because the melancholy has to be drummed out. She can't let it sit inside her. Well, Shake It Out, then, is autobiographical because its lyrics extend the metaphor 
that she's used to describe her music, you know, just all-encompassing. And it culminates really here uh, in a brutal account of her forging a new path. And, and typical of the, of her genre hopping. I mean, the song combines elements gothic, Celtic, bluesy, danceable. And the description, that, that probably sounds like a mess, especially to our listeners that are not Florence and, and the Machine fans uh, that, that don't know a lot about her her work. But, um, you know, it sounds like a mess, but it's actually quite the opposite. And and that's due in part to Welch's hurtling vocals, some of, some of the most bewitching in both the rock and pop worlds right now. But, you know, the song itself, Welch has said that the lyrics are about traveling through the dark, slaying monsters, lying in wait, and seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. And she's also said that when she's on tour and things get worrying, performing the song is cathartic, as it helps her to find solace and renewal. But here's the irony, because all that is true, everything that I've just said. But the song was actually written about having a hangover. Regrets collect like old friends Here to relive your darkest moments I can see no way, I can see no and all of the goons come out to play That every demon wants his pound of flesh But I like to keep some things to myself I like to keep my shoes strong It's always darkest before the Welch came to the studio the day it was written with with just a a horrible hangover. And she was having one of those strange days where she wasn't really sure where her song comes from, right? And producer Paul Epworth, he shared some chords that he had been working on, uh, working with on on the organ. And she thought that they sounded both optimistic and sad at the same time. And it reminded her of her many regrets. And she likened it to when you feel like you're stuck in yourself, you keep repeating certain patterns of behavior. You kind of want to cut out that part of you and restart again. So, you know, she explained that she wanted to just shake something out, shake out those regrets, shake out those things that haunt her, but she also wanted to shake out the hangover specifically. So the full lyrics came to her in about a half an hour, having a hangover at the time, and she said that writing the song was literally a hangover cure. <laughs> and, you know, so this gospel-tinged tune, I mean, it concludes with Florence roaring. It's hard to dance with the devil on your back, so shake him off. And she says that sometimes she has to write songs for herself, reminding her to let it go. She's also joked, though, that the end refrain of the song, What the Hell, uh, was really important as well because she was sure that she would dance with the devil again at some point. Metaphor for, of course, she's going to drink too much on another occasion. And, you know, she jokingly said that, you know, the next time it might be fun because, you know, she, she hears the devil does a really good foxtrot <laughs> so i it's it but you know the hangover bit i find just really clever and, and really quite amusing but but the song it's just 
first of all, it I mean, we talk infectious hooks all the time on on the podcast, but this one, I mean, just the moment that tribal drum beat begins and and, and her vocals, it's just I I don't know. It, it's a song that really I. I need to shake a devil off my back because, you know, it's a song you cannot restrain yourself from swaying to. So it, it's really, yeah, definitely a song I wanted to include. This so. sounds similar to In a Little While by by U2, um, which is off 2000, 2001, It's All That You Can't Leave Behind, yeah. was a song about a hangover. Um, at the time after that was released, um, Joey Ramone, who had cancer and was dying in the hospital, um, was visited by Bono, and Bono was uh, trying to comfort him in his last days. And uh, Joey requested that Bono play in a little while. And as Bono was playing the song, um, he realized that you know, Joey Ramone just took a song about a hangover and made it a gospel hymn about you know transcending from this earth into the afterlife. That is actually yeah. one of the coolest stories yeah. I've, I've heard. So it reminds I'm, me how, like you say, sometimes in this case, they both happen to be hangovers, but you can take a song about something simplistic and it can be elevated to something even bigger. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that is a great story. I've yeah. never heard, heard that. I am, well, and I, there you have two legends in themselves. Yep. I mean, yep. you know, you have Joey Ramone and Bono in the same room. I mean, anything they do is gold. Yep. So yep. Um, no, I've never heard that. That, yeah. is, that is so cool. Yeah, and with Bono, of course, I have always joked that, you, you know, any song that Bono pens could either be about God or a girl. <laughs> depending on your perspective so true and so it's a, it's the same way in this case I mean a lot of times in fact when I heard that song I never I did I, I assumed it was something a little more transcendent and when I found out it was about a hangover I'm like oh yeah I guess I can see that it's kind of disappointing <laughs> <laughs> but the whole thing with, with Joey was great so yeah no I love that all right all right I'm gonna go uh, a little bit uh, earlier now to uh, right about the time of our birth Okay, and it's also the birth of of an, another artist that uh, unfortunately only lived about seven years uh, after their first uh, album. Uh, actually, he, his last performance was in Pittsburgh in 1980, when he finally was at the he collapsed after the show and was too ill to perform because of his uh, cancer that eventually went to his brain. I'm talking about Bob Marley and oh, his band oh, The Wailers. Okay, and the song is "Get Up, Stand Up." Yeah, I, th- I thought about this one. And I figured we need to put a little bit of reggae on here. Oh. This is this would be a perfect one. Yeah, Preacher man, don't tell me heaven is under the earth. I know you don't know what life is really worth. It's not all that glitters is gold. Half the story has never been told. So now you see the light. Stand up for your rights. It was written by Bob Marley and Peter Tosh. And the song is essentially about taking action to avoid oppression uh, influenced by their upbringing in Jamaica, where they had to fight for respect and acceptance for their Always. religion. Yep. Never been told so 
Get Up, Stand Up was the last song that uh, that he performed on stage in Pittsburgh. So there's kind of a semi-local connection there as well. I did not realize Pittsburgh was his last performance. Yeah, it's it's now the Benningham Center, where I, I actually saw the Decembers there a few years ago. Hmm. And it's not a very big, uh, it's kind of akin to like the Akron Music, uh, Akron Civic Theater. Um, was that I, where, was that where you and I saw Brian Wilson? Or no, you and I saw Brian Wilson. Actually, it was at a, um, um, like a like it was an old restored like mansion. Was it? I, that's I, now owned by I think like their arts division. Okay. Yeah, it's a little bit yeah, different. I, I don't remember where where that venue yeah, was. Um, yeah. No, I oh, I love Marley. Yep. Love Marley. I just it's another song I never even thought about. Get up, stand up for the for the episode. I, that's why I love doing the the, yeah. the podcast with you. It's like. So many of your choices, I, I just want to facepalm myself because they, they didn't come to me as I was making my list. So. Well, I mean, you know, like I say, it's specifically written by he and Tosh about, you know, their religion and trying to gain a respect for that. But you can apply that to anything, to the civil rights movement or now currently the Black Lives Matter movement or to women's rights or uh, Me Too. You, you can name the cause. Oh, yeah. Um, this song is a good rallying cry for whatever it is that you are trying to fight. Absolutely. Um, no, I mean, yeah, no, love it. Um, okay, well, my next song choice is by Eminem, and the song is Lose Yourself. Um, From 8 Mile. Yeah, 8 Mile. Um, you know, the movie was loosely based on his own life, and like the film's protagonist, you know, Eminem, Marshall Mathers, grew up in a poor Detroit neighborhood and followed his own dream of, of rap stardom. This song actually did not come easy for Eminem. Um, he really struggled to find a way to authentically express himself under the guise of the fictional character. Um, you know, he said that because the character he played was not himself, he had to make parallels between his own life and the character in the song. And as he explained it, he had to figure out how to reach a medium. You know, he thought it would sound fraudulent if he was just rapping as the character. And he kept asking himself, you know, how is that going to come from a real place? So he explained that, you know, if he was going to tell you that, you know, his daughter doesn't have diapers, that he needs this amount of money to pay his bills for the month. And these are his words. If, if it's some real shit, I try not to swear on the, on the podcast, but uh, that he's telling you, then you know that it's just coming from him. So the trick was he had to figure out how to make the rhyme sound like him but then um, the character that is, and then morph into me somehow. Uh, so, you know, it, the parallels between his struggles and, and the character struggles and, and his own. It, he really had, for whatever reason, and he had, you know, Eminem had sung or you know, many times in, in, you know, in character. I mean, Slim Shady was, you know, but that was self-parody and, and the like. Here he was trying to genuinely, um, you know, sing as two people at once and he really really struggled with it um on the movie set eminem had um you know a a trailer where he could record songs for the soundtrack during breaks in filming and he wrote lose yourself in character as b rabbit who he played in the film And, and the song it's highly produced it's heavily layered but um you know, in addition to the several vocal tracks, there are, there are horns, woodwinds, strings, keyboards, drums, and sound effects all over the track. And now this is unlike most rap songs, Lose Yourself actually uses a guitar playing power chords, which is very unusual for the genre. Um, but when the movie studio released the first trailers, the, the song didn't exist yet. So they used Cleaning Out My Closet. 
uh, which which the studio really wanted to feature in the movie, but Eminem thought that song was far too personal for the movie, uh, which is one of the reasons he was so determined to write something that fit the character. Look, if you had one shot, one opportunity to seize everything you ever wanted in one moment, would you capture it? Yo. His palms are sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy There's vomit on his sweater already, mom's spaghetti He's nervous, but on the surface he looks calm and ready to drop palms But he keeps on forgetting what he wrote down The whole crowd goes so loud, he opens his mouth But the words won't come out, he's choking how? Everybody's choking now, the clock's run out Time's up, over, plow, snap back to reality Oh, there goes gravity, oh, there goes gravity He's so mad, but he won't give up daddies He know he won't have it, he knows His whole back's at these ropes It don't matter, he's dope He knows that, but he's broke He's so stagnant, he knows When he goes back to this mobile home That's when it's back to the lab again, yo This old rap city better go capture this moment And hope it don't do better He performed the song uh, backed by The Roots at the, the 2003 Grammy Awards. And um, yeah, the song won Grammy for Best Rap Song. Lose Yourself also won Best Song at the 2003 Oscars, um, beating out songs by Paul Simon and U2, no less. And that was this huge, hugely bold choice on the part of the Academy, really, because they... You know, they normally pick more family-friendly. They favor traditional. Absolutely. Family-friendly songs. And, you know, when Barbara Streisand announced the award, she was visibly surprised. Um, I don't think anyone really thought that Eminem stood a chance of winning, yeah. e- even if he was most deserving. But any any voter who is honest with themselves, oh, yeah. if you're voting on the power of the song and its impact on the film, yep. that transcends any type of, of genre or... Oh. Tradition. 100% agree. And you can't argue, even if you're not a hip-hop fan, the power of this song and the power this song had in the film. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I'll give Streisand credit because I mean, she was clearly surprised, but she couldn't contain her, her enthusiasm. She was over the moon that, that he won, right. which you don't associate Barbara Streisand with Eminem right, by any means, but I mean, she was genuinely just the throw in her voice when, when she read the name. But, but here's the kicker. I don't know if you remember this. Eminem did not perform at the Oscars. Correct. Um, he did not even show up to accept the award. Um, it's not because he was boycotting the Oscars. A lot of people thought that he had some beef with them. That, that wasn't the case. The Motion Picture Academy wanted him to sing the radio-friendly version of the song, but he wanted to sing the song as it was written and let the censors just edit the language on a delay. Uh, when they couldn't agree, Eminem just said that I'm not coming. Right. You know? And, um, you know, it, it was actually... Uh, the very first winning song that was not performed at the Oscars since the awards show had been televised. Interesting. Um, but in 2019, um, he actually made a surprise cameo and he performed yep. Lose Yourself because yep. they did a montage of songs that have now become synonymous with the films that they were in. And, you know, he, he, he did come, he performed the songs he wanted to you know, in 2003, and essentially, um, you know, afterwards, he, he 
issued an apology saying, you know, thank you to the Academy for, for allowing me to do this. I'm sorry that it took me, you know, uh, 14 years to actually, but he still got what he wanted, but he did. He did. So. Yeah. He, he won in the end. And, um, yeah, I mean, Eminem, I, I, this is an artist that, that I, I just revere. I, to me, he is, he, he I mean, a lot of people, he was one of those artists that was dismissed, not only because he was a white man rapping at first. I mean, he's finally, you know, hurt, come over that hurdle and people now respect him as the real deal. But, but two, I mean, he was so juvenile in the beginning with the Slim Shady stuff and people didn't take him seriously for that reason. But he also, I mean, he's a rapper and, you know, the obscenities and the like, which is just part of the genre. Um, a lot of people just, you know, they've really given him a hard time. And from the, from the moment he began, I just, he was an artist that I just, I knew, you know, that, that he was, he was meant for superstardom, that this was someone who had such innate talent. And I, I remember when he performed with Elton John, that, you know, people were in an uproar because so many of his songs had, you know, homosexual slurs and the like. Right. But again, he was singing in character. Well, it's, Elton it's John just, defended him in, yeah, in those yeah, choices absolutely. that he made. So. so, no, but it's, yeah, Lose Yourself. I mean, it's it's become a sports anthem. You know, it, it's just a oh, great song. So, all right. Your turn. Well, I, I've been, I try to reserve my choices that, my, you know, my, my go-to artists... And I've said before, my go-to artists have extensive catalogs, and usually the range of topics is very eclectic, and so it's very easy to find songs that fit these themes. But I try to reserve a lot of those choices to my alternates list, and you know, I, I want to we want to keep you know a good variety of music. But this is one that I had to put on my list. Um, this song is from Bruce Springsteen. Never would have guessed. <laughs> and this is coming from a fellow Springsteen fan, but yeah. It, uh, it earned Grammy Awards for Best Rock Song, Best Male Rock Vocal Performance. Rolling Stone named it the 35th Best Song of the Decade. Okay. It, uh, it's literally, literally about firefighters ascending the stairs of the World Trade Center on 9-11. Okay. Yeah, I thought this is where we were going. Yeah. But the last verse transitions into a more spiritual territory making the song a metaphor for facing incredible challenges and not looking back. Um, it's been played at times by Springsteen himself for its metaphoric-powered political rallies. Mm -hmm. Most recently, it was featured in a video that kicked off the Democratic National Convention and has become kind of a theme for Joe Biden's campaign. Yes, it has. Can't see nothing in front of me. Can't see nothing coming up behind. I make my way through the darkness. I can't feel nothing but the chain that binds me. I'm talking about 2002's the Rising. The Rising, yep. This album kind of marks, well, I hate to say Springsteen's comeback because Springsteen never really left. Springsteen changes, as we've talked about, uh, changes direction quite often in his career, never quits writing, but chooses when to, you know, finally make that statement to the world that he's gone into a different direction. Yep. And, of course, the 80s, Bruce Springsteen kind of ended with the, um, the Tunnel of Love and kind of the introspective family man um, Bruce Springsteen. And, you know, there's this urban legend. I guess I have no reason to, I don't even know if Springsteen has verified this or not, but the urban, the legend that I hear is shortly after 9-11, Springsteen was driving around in Asbury Park or somewhere in northern New Jersey where he resides. <clears throat> Colt Neck, I think, is the suburb. And he was driving and he was at a stoplight and somebody pulled up next to him and looked over and, and mouthed the words, we need you, you know, we need you now. More than ever, we need you now. 
And, and Springsteen went back and he thought about it and he had, had a few songs that he had been kind of working on. Um, My City in Ruins, which actually was written for Asbury Park itself and right. the fact that it had, um, you know, de-evolved to, to what it is and tr- trying to uh, you know, promote the, the uh, reconstruction of that particular city where he grew up. But then he realized that it applied. In fact, he performed My City in Ruins for the um, 9-11, 9/11 telethon that yeah. came right after the, the towers fell. And so he went back to the studio and he was really concerned when writing this album. He was concerned that people, first of all, and some people did accuse him of this, of exploiting the tragedy for commercial gain. He was also concerned that his music would be interpreted as a rally cry to go to war. And and so he was very, very careful. And and the album most consider now one of Springsteen's greatest, uh, not only for uh, the time in which it was written, but how he approaches the subject. And the song includes, you know, in some cases, small stories about individuals and characters who are affected, some from the firefighters and the rescue workers themselves and their perspective, as in The Rising, um, some from the family members who lost loved ones, and some for the larger themes, some like Mary's Place, uh, just mm-hmm. how do we react to some tragedy like this and how do we recover from that? Right. And so when listened to almost like a collection of short stories, you know, 20 years later now, 9-11, in fact, this summer I went back and I listened to it a few times uh, straight through. It really is probably the best uh, ode to that time period. Can't see nothing in front of me Can't see nothing coming up behind Make my way through this darkness I can't feel nothing but this chain that binds me Lost track of how far I've gone How far I've gone How high I've climbed On my back's a 60-pound stone On the shoulder half mile of line Come on up for the horizon Come on up and lay your hands in mine Come on All right, um, my next one is yet again a newer song. Um, I promise I have Gen X coming. Well, you've already taken two of my Gen X titles, but um, this one is actually by Kesha, and it is Praying. And, you know, this song, I I can't speak enough about this. Um, you know, Kesha, I hate to say it, she's, she's an earworm, and she's a guilty pleasure. The early work is, is, is a guilty pleasure. As a DJ... TikTok will bring people to the dance floor every time. <laughs> it just will. Timber, when she partners with Pitbull, will bring people to the to the dance floor every time. 
Um, you know, I love, uh, you know, Kesha's, you know, first two albums where, you know, she, she played the, um, the Hellcat, you know, she was just, um, the drunk, feral, wild child at the party. But, um, you know, she went through an ordeal that, that just, I mean, I don't think probably no other female artist has ever had to, to, to undergo, um, you know, for four years, she sat in silence, literally, uh, feeling wave after wave of emotions, waiting for a moment that she could unleash her, her first words to the world again. And, and no one, no one knows, you know, um, how hard it is to remain silent, um, in, in quite the same way as Kesha does. Um, she was unable to record new music amid her complicated and salacious legal battles with former producer, Dr. Luke. And, you know, to recap, I, listeners, um, may not know, you know, the whole, the whole ordeal, but, you know, Kesha, um, even though those first two albums were the material, I mean, they, you know, they were huge and they celebrated, uh, this liberated this freedom, uh, from a, from, you know, in character of someone who, you know, just threw caution to the wind and could do as she liked and she had no fears. Um, but the songwriter herself, she was anything but liberated behind the scenes. Um, in, in January of 2014, Kesha checked into Timberline Knowles Residential Treatment Center, a uh, rehab facility in Lamont, Illinois, uh, for an eating disorder treatment. Uh, Kesha's mother confirmed that Kesha was suffering from bulimia and that she was struggling with it since she was signed to Dr. Luke's recording label, Kimosabi. And, and according to Kesha, Dr. Luke was partly the cause of her eating disorder. She revealed that Luke told her to lose weight after he signed her, comparing the shape of her body to a refrigerator. Um, which caused her, her eating disorder to worsen. Kesha completed her treatment in March of 2014 after spending two months in rehab. Then when she, uh, you know, came out, uh, information started to, to, to surface about what she had been in, enduring uh, under Dr. Luke's control. In, in October 2014, she sued Dr. Luke for sexual assault and battery, sexual harassment, gender violence, emotional abuse and violation of California business practices, which had occurred over 10 years of working together. Um, she, she stated that Dr. Luke repeatedly drugged her at sexual contact with her, with and without her consent, and that this abuse caused her eating disorder. And Kesha, she asked the court to break her contract with Dr. Luke. In response, Dr. Luke filed a countersuit against Kesha, alleging defamation, accusing her of fabricating the abuse claims to break her contract with him. And, and this to-and-fro tennis match of allegations, just it prevented her from working with alternate music producers, publishers, or, or record labels to, to release new music. Um, and with no new music to perform, she was unable to tour and you know, off the radio and stage and out of the spotlight, Kesha couldn't sell merchandise, receive sponsorships, get media attention. Her her career was really in jeopardy, and it was it was uncertain if she would ever be able to work again with anyone other than her abuser. Um, on February nineteenth of two thousand sixteen, New York Supreme Court Judge Shirley Kornreich she ruled against Kesha's request for a preliminary injunction that would release her from the contract with Kimosabi Records. And, and the, verdict, the verdict just, it sparked protests outside the courtroom for, by Kesha supporters. And it started the hashtag free Kesha movement online. After the ruling, Kesha made public that she was actually offered freedom from the recording contract um, with the condition that she retract the rape and drug allegations and publicly apologize for lying. 
but she rejected the settlement, saying that you know the truth could not be retracted. Um, and and you, the litigation continued. The legal battles finally ended in April of 2016, when again New York Judge Shirley Kornreich she dismissed Kesha's claims of sexual assault, sexual harassment, and, and gender violence. Um, numerous celebrities reacted to the ruling. George Takei, um, or Takai, 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 yeah, yeah. George Takai, he he wrote, "This ruling is an unfortunate and troubling example of favoring corporations over people." Uh, producer Brad Walsh tweeted, "You know, forcing a woman to work with her rapist or to work to profit her rapist is a failure of justice." Lena Dunham wrote an article expressing her solidarity with Kesha. Several musicians voiced their support for Kesha through Twitter. Miley Cyrus and Margaret Cho posted a picture of Fiona Apple holding a placard reading, Kesha, I'm so angry for you. They were wrong, I'm sorry, on Instagram. And Jack Antonoff and Zed, they offered to produce and work with Kesha, with the latter of the two eventually producing her song True Colors. And while accepting a trophy at the, at the Brit Awards, Adele stated, I'd also like to take this moment to publicly support Kesha. Singer-songwriter Taylor Swift donated two hundred fifty thousand dollars to help Kesha with any of her financial needs, and it, it just it kept coming. The the outpour, the you know the support and the love. Lady Gaga, Iggy Azalea, Demi Lovato, Alessia Cara, Ariana Grande, Lily Allen, Kelly Clarkson, Lord, I all these artists, mostly female, supporting Kesha through social media. Um, the biggest takeaway, really, from the multitudes of, of filings and courtroom drama was that even in today's climate. You know, it's still treacherously difficult for a young female musician navigating the male-dominated waters of the major music industry. But galvanized by the support, Kesha uh, revealed that she had actually recorded 22 new songs and was working on a forthcoming third album. And Sony finally cut ties with Dr. Luke, and he was removed from his role as producer for the label that he had created. Kesha still had to, she was still forced to release the album on the label, due to contractual obligations. And despite these circumstances, though, her lead single, Praying, was released on July 6, 2017, and it offered the first taste of what that long-just-hitting LP, which was titled Rainbow, was going to sound like. And, you know, they say hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, but on Praying, uh, Kesha pushed through her demons and, and possessed a remarkable level of empathy and understanding. I mean, her capacity for forgiveness on the, on, on the track, it was just a worthy returning message, really, for all those who had given her courage and momentum through those darkest of days. The song was written and produced by Ryan Lewis of Macklemore and Ryan Lewis fame. Um, and it was unlike Ke anything Kesha had ever recorded before. I mean, its lyrics directly addressed the man who had hurt her. And she sang in the chorus to her abuser, to Dr. Luke, I hope you're somewhere praying. I hope your soul is changing. I hope you find your peace falling on your knees praying. It was forgiveness, but it was also resilience and resistance, and it demonstrated her growth into a strong, independent woman. You almost had me fooled. Told me that I was nothing. Without you, oh, but after everything you've done, I can thank you for how strong I have become. 
Cause you brought the flames and you put me through hell I had to learn how to fight for myself And we both know all the truth I could tell I'll just say this is I wish you farewell I hope you're somewhere praying Praying I hope your soul is changing Changing I hope you find your peace Falling on your knees Praying She's saying these lyrics with such power behind her voice and there was there was a desperation in it to express just how far she had come. You know, this desperation was so personal to her, and yet she shared it publicly so that listeners could know something of it for themselves. And the morning that the song was released, Kesha published a letter on Lena Dunham's Lenny website that read, I've channeled my feelings of severe hopelessness and depression. I've overcome obstacles. I found strength in myself even when it felt out of reach. And, you know, praying, it, it just marked a significant new start for her. I mean, the singer... Kesha bravely just took on her abuser. She saw the free Kesha movement transformed into a rallying cry. She decided that she would move forward victoriously, even if the court did not, you know, exactly deem it so. And it was just a powerful statement of resiliency, even if the resulting song's familiar piano melody sounded comparatively tepid. And the song's narrative, I mean, it's that of a journey to self-belief, again, after years of dejection, bullying, undermining. To me, it's just this brave move in and of itself and you know to cast her anguish and her decide to come into her assailant with a message of peace was enough to induce goosebumps and in even the harshest of, of cynics and in theory praying it was it was a massive anthem before one note of music was ever composed and it sounds like it was constructed to build on precisely that quality you know it starts at, at its start it it kind of tugs at the heartstrings like Adele doing spoken word but at the close it sounds like Florence Welch you know directing an orchestra um, but at the center, there was Kesha's voice, and it, it was no longer digitally manipulated. It was free from Dr. Luke's control, and it was stronger than it used to sound on the records he had produced. So, I mean, it just, I, I remember when I heard the song first time, I just, I was, I was genuinely moved. I, it's been very rare in my life, even with songs that I, I'm passionate about, that a song made me just stop what I was doing. And it affected me so emotionally. And praying, it had that effect. It was, you, you know the song, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. To me, it's just, it is one of the greatest anthems, maybe of, of all time. But certainly, you know, with the Me Too movement and you know, everything, um, you know, the, the gender inequity. I mean, it is, it is, I think, probably the most powerful statement to come uh, from a female artist, um, at least, you know, in since since the turn the, the the new millennia began i mean it's just for the 2000s it's it's perfect so. great choice all I, right well hard to follow that one <laughs> yeah sorry about that but it's all right it's going going back to um a song that again is kind of like we talked about the rising is being used currently in the political campaign this song as well you may hear um, it is a song that was originally recorded in 1973 and has been re-recorded with guest artists like Joe Walsh, uh, uh, Daryl Hall, produced by Don Was. Okay. And the artist, that I'll mention here in a second, um, has made this available free to any Democratic politician that uh, wishes to use it in their campaign. 
So like we talked about, there are all sorts of songs that are being used and lots of songs from my list because they lend themselves to fighting back being used by candidates that the artist does not agree with. And while the artist doesn't have necessarily legal recourse to tell them not to use it because, you know, all the licensing fees and so forth have been paid for in the venue, they're making it known in the media that they do not support that particular candidate. And in this case, it's kind of the opposite. Todd Rundgren uh, has created this new re-recording with guest artists to be used by free for him with his full support for any any Democratic uh, candidate. And so I have not heard it used specifically with the Biden campaign, but I wouldn't be surprised. In fact, I didn't know any of this when I picked this song. Uh, I just picked a song. It's one of my favorite songs. It's a song that he usually, if not closes with, I've seen Rundgren, I think, three times now live. He either closes with this or, 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 you know, plays it near the end of his show. And that's just one victory. Yeah. We've been waiting so long. We've been waiting for the sun to rise and shine. Shining, still to give us the will. Can you hear me? Can you hear the sound of my voice? I'm here to tell you, I have made my choice. It's a song about, again, can be applied in a generic sense, but it's just about taking your stand, making that choice, but also having the hope that there will be a new day, that the sun will shine, and you will have that victory, whether it be political um, you know, campaign or political otherwise, right? You can apply this to all sorts of movements that are happening today, even though this came out 1973 from the album A Wizard and a True Star. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with this album, not well, um, no. This is a psychedelically experimental album. Okay. Uh, he didn't even release any singles off of this album because he wanted, uh, he, he kind of called it a hallucinogenic flight plan. <laughs> this is 1973, and this is Todd Rundgren, right? Where he wanted all the tracks to kind of like flow into each other. Hmm. So the idea was kind of like a concept album. He wanted the listeners to just sit back and just let the whole experience engulf them. And so he didn't want to break that up. But um, Just One Victory is, he kind of ends the album with some more melodic type of, of songs that kind of harken back to some of his soul uh, roots, or at least album uh, artists, soul, al- soul artists that he, yeah, right. that inspired no, no. him. Got it. And this is a good example of that. And so it's an easy one to lift from that as a single. And it's an easy one to use for a piece of inspiration. Okay, I'm gonna, Rundgren, Rundgren is one of those artists, everyone, everyone, I, I talk about rock hall snobs, snobs oh, yeah. all the time, oh, yeah. but Rundgren is one of those artists that everyone points to time and again, how is he not in the rock it's, hall? If, if not even I, as a producer, much less his own his body own, of work, yeah, his exactly. own recording. Um, I know Rundgren's hits. 
Um, but I've never been a huge fan of his of his discography. And really, if it's not received major airplay, I, I really, I, I don't know. I've never gravitated toward him. I've, I've liked everything I've heard. He's just not an artist that I've been passionate about and have followed and, and you know, sought out. Okay, well, um, this is another one of those songs that if it's not included, uh, you know, it, it, it has to be included. Uh, you may have left it off thinking that I would have it, which in, in that case, you, you succeeded because it's right here front and center. Um, I want you for a moment to imagine that you get home, okay, we're, we're talking early 80s, okay, at a time when, uh, you know, answering machines were still something of a novelty, you know, and they're, they're, they're new. You get excited when you see the blinking light, you know, knowing that someone has left you a message. And you play it back and you hear, hey, yo, Jim, that's a nice message you got there. This is Sylvester Stallone, okay? And, you know, he is asking you to return his call. I mean, to me, you know, what do you do when, when this happens? That That's exactly what happened, though, um, to Jim Pederick. And, ah, and yeah. Frankie Sullivan. Yep. Um, Pederick, you know, he has said that he thought the voice was too thick. It, it to really be Stallone, you know, had to be a joke. That they were pranked. Yeah, yeah. But as it turned out, the message was real, and according to Pederick, that's really how the Italian stallion talks. Okay. Um, and my impression was notoriously bad. So yeah. Um, but um, yeah, Survivor. Um, you know, Jim Pederick and, and Frankie Sullivan, they were the, the primary lyricists, two members of the band Survivor. Um, Stallone, uh, really, you know, he, he really enjoyed their sound, their writing style, their street appeal he felt could fit in his new movie. And he called them up and asked them to write the song for Rocky III. Um, you know, the first two Rocky and movies... I pity the fool that didn't take that opportunity, uh, but they did, so... Yeah, I see what you did there. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the first two Rocky movies, I mean, they used, obviously, the very you know very popular orchestral theme, Gonna Fly Now, which was written by Bill Conti. Um, which, by the way, I also considered for I, this list. It was very nearly on my list. Yeah. I um, It was on my list for a time. Yeah, it was, it was on mine as well. I, I was going to be the first one I threw at you, but um, I, I ended up taking it off, but now, of course, mentioning it, it goes on the the alternates list. Um, yeah, but I'm going to fly now. I mean, it was, it was number one hit in 77, you know, and, and Stallone though, in his first conversation with survivor, he made it clear he wanted to distance himself from going to fly now. Um, he didn't want to use Conti's theme in the third film because he instead wanted something that genuinely rocked so that he could market the film to a younger audience. There again, we have the eighties tie in, right? Yes. He understood the power of a hit single yep. promoting a film. Exactly. So, you know, when Petrick and Sullivan, they got the initial rough cut of the movie. And, you know, the scene where I, the tiger, actually appears in the film, when they were watching, you know, the, the footage, when they were watching that scene, uh, which Stallone forwarded to them, it was actually cut originally to Another One Bites the Dust by Queen. And, you know, the two songwriters, they're watching it, you know, the cut, and they both agreed that Another One Bites the Dust was perfect. It was perfect. And they questioned, they called Stallone and they asked him, why are you replacing Queen's classic? It, it's, you know, it, it's the perfect song. And Stallone explained that they couldn't get the publishing rights to it. So that left Pedrick and Sullivan and they looked at each other and, you know, they were, they were now in a dilemma. How the hell do we compare to Queen's, you know, another one bites the dust. 
Um, so they, they started doing that, you know, they, they sat down, they, they started to compose the song. Pedrick started doing that, that now famous dead string guitar riff, and he started slashing those chords to the punches he saw on the screen. And, and the whole song kind of took shape in the next three days. Um, Sullivan came in with the line, back on the street, doing time, taking chances. And then Pedrick suggested they instead change the line to rising up, back on the street, did my time, took my chances, to make it fit with the storyline and to make the rhythm of the words fit the music that he was hearing in his head. And, and that was really the lyrical spark that got the song started. And over the next few days, they worked on the lyrics, remembering pieces of the movie dialogue, like went the distance. And, you know, they referred to that central phrase and, and you know, Stallone's dialogue. And, you know, they, they slowly, um, you know, came to came to create what we now know as Eye of the Tiger. title actually was almost not it almost wasn't the title okay it was not a short thing at first they wondered you know if calling it eye of the tiger was you know too obvious um and the initial draft of the song which i found interesting i never knew this it actually started with it's the eye of the tigers the thrill of the fight rising up to the spirit of our rival okay which rival then is set up for the end rhyme obviously they actually originally had the the uh, you know the lyric end and the last known survivor stalks his prey in the night and it all comes down to survival and they were going to call the song survival i i, I had never heard this story um but you know they were going through and they were listening to it they were playing it again and again and you know obviously they set rival up to rhyme with survival but at the end of the day they decided the hook was strong as it was rival did not have to be a perfect rhyme and they just made the right choice i mean they, they said it's got to be eye of the tiger um stallone loved the song and when he when he heard the demo he told the group you know it was exactly what he was looking for but he requested a mix with louder drums he asked if they could write a new third verse instead of repeating the first as they had done and and the group did what stallone suggested you know it's which 
you know, they they went about modifying the first verse. They remixed the song as he asked. Suggestions from an actor are usually not what bands are looking for when, when creating a song. But, you know, they, they did what he, he asked. And Sloan, he knew what he was doing. I mean, it, obviously. But Pederick, you know, he said he remembers uh, the song that it came out while they were on tour with Ario Speedwagon. And the song was getting huge ovations, you know, live. And he thought, okay, cool. But it wasn't until he was eating at a Pizza Hut in, in some small town, and he, he doesn't even remember the name. It's some forgotten small town of America. He was sitting there eating all alone, you know, eating pizza, when the song came on the jukebox. And a little five-year-old girl in a booth, you know, across from him, she, she literally jumped from her seat, hit the dance floor, and started screaming. Everyone in the restaurant could hear There's her. There's a dance floor in a pizza hut? Well, Okay. She made one. Okay. <laughs> she, yeah, no, I, I doubt they had a dance floor, but this was Petrek's own words. Gotcha. So yeah. She jumped from her seat and went to the floor, if you, if you prefer, and she started screaming. Everyone in the restaurant turns around to see what's causing the commotion, and the little girl keeps screaming, they're playing my song, they're playing my song, and she starts dancing to Eye of the Tiger. And Petrek said that he knew right then that this song had lasting power. Um the, the song has since become very popular among people in physical therapy, marathon runners, weightlifters, athletes. Local football teams. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> and just about anyone facing a challenge. And, and, you know, the songwriters never could have predicted the song's longevity. I mean, it, it seems obvious now, but they, they just wrote a song for a movie. That, you know, uh, the fact that it was huge wasn't a big surprise at the time. But, you know, they are still surprised today that the song continues to be a mainstay at stadiums and arenas. Well, I'm sure glad they wrote it too because otherwise they'd be working at Pizza Hut. They would, They didn't yes. have much of a career. They had no. a few singles. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, they, you know, they, they had a couple of albums under their belt, but they weren't very commercially successful. Uh, Stallone liked the song so much that he actually brought them back and asked them to write the theme to Rocky IV, which was Burning Heart. Burning Heart, you know. yeah. Um, but yeah, Eye of the Tiger is just so iconic and it especially... Uh, Pedrick, you know, and Sullivan, they've said they know, especially marching bands across the country at every level, high school, college level. You know, this is a song that is very easy uh, to make formations to. It's a very simple song, 2-4, with, you know, not many chord changes. And he said, obviously, it is set up so that the song will will never die because any sports team with the Tiger mascot, yep. you know, it, it's it's now, you know, synonymous with with the school um or or the professional you know team which yes we are from the akron canton area northeast ohio and we are proud bulldog graduates if you know anything about the area you know that our biggest rival are tigers and you know we have the longest storied rivalry in in high school history high school rivalry yeah Yeah. uh, there's a reason why we had the pro football hall of fame in canton because the first professional football team was the bulldogs um bulldogs and the tigers have been playing for over 100 years um yeah those masculine tigers they're never gonna let this song die no which it's fine with me if i don't hear it again (laughs) no it's a great song no it It it, is it is it's one of the first um 45s I ever owned. Oh, absolutely. Uh, You know, it won the Grammy for Best Rock Performance by a duo, and it was also nominated for Song of the Year, but it lost to a a little ditty by Willie Nelson called Always On My Mind. Oh, yeah. Um, It was also nominated for Best Original Song at the Oscars, um, but it lost there to Up Where We Belong. And... From another movie. From another movie, yes. Officer and a Gentleman. Yep. That was a big practice back then. Oh, it was, yeah. Um, But I will say this. You know, according to Billboard... 
you know, none of that mattered because Eye of the Tiger was the number one song of 1982. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it is just a, it's probably, I mean, it's cliche. It's, it's so obvious, but it had to make my list. And it, you know, it is the defining song for Gen X, I would argue, you know, for overcoming odds, standing up, fighting for, you know, victory. So, it, yeah. it's, it's there. I, I'd like to say I have it on 45. I gave all my 45s away. Oh, you didn't. To a co... Well, I think you'll appreciate where I gave them. I have a co-worker. He's retired now, but okay. I still know where he lives if I have to track him down. Who has a jukebox. Oh. They, they, they purchased a jukebox. It's like a 70s model for their basement, and they didn't have any records for it. Mm-hmm. And so I donated my collection knowing that it would be played okay. in a jukebox in somebody's rec room in their right. basement. So it's, that's better than just collecting oh, yeah. dust in a box. Now, the listeners can't see it, but I am Wayne and Garthing you. You know, I'm not worthy. That, right. that, is, that, that is actually... I, I, that, yeah. That's where it belongs. Um, you know, that is my buck. That is near the top of my bucket list uh, items. I, I want... And I've told my wife this constant, many times. I want a jukebox. <laughs> but I want... I want old. I want Rockola or Wurlitzer. I'm, I, I want the classic, you know, nineteen forties, nineteen fifties jukebox. I priced them. They're they're anywhere between ten and twenty thousand dollars. But you know, someday I don't know. We, um, we were at uh, we were up at Bowling Green actually uh, last week, and we were yeah, at yeah. Frickers. And my son looked over and he said, "What's that on the wall?" And it was one of those uh, not even CD jukeboxes. Oh, the it counter. Was, it, no, but it was a streaming one on the wall. Oh really? You had okay. to walk up and and pay. And oh yeah, I know I'm sure it's you. just a little MP3 player yeah, in there. I know. Yeah, but he didn't even didn't quite get the point of that. Even yeah, if you're going to do a jukebox, do it. Do a jukebox. Do a jukebox. Yeah, I don't. I'm not even a fan of the CDs. I don't. You know, my jukebox. If I can ever get there, I'm a teacher. Probably won't be able to afford the jukebox I want ever. But um, yeah, I'm CD jukeboxes are pointless. I want the 45s. I want to see. The, 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 the record fall the, down. The record fall, the arm come out, needle drop. You know, that's that's always been my dream. I've always wanted a man cave. The little cards that give you the A and B yeah, side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So someday, cool. but not now. <laughs> so Eye of the Tiger. Awesome. Yep, it had to be there. I didn't pick it because I knew you would. Yeah, I, I think That's why I had Gonna Fly now, too. And I thought, well, I don't know if we need two Rocky songs. So yeah. that's why I didn't. Well, and I, I, I almost had them both, and but... I, I very intentionally was going to name it so it made the, the alternates list anyway, yep. which now it has. So. Well, keeping with the theme of songs that are used for campaigns and the artist not liking it very much, this one was just used uh, a few months ago for the Trump campaign. The artist is no longer with us, unfortunately, but the family of the artist made a big stink about it, and that is uh, I Won't Back Down by Tom Petty. Mm-hmm. And not only did the family come out against it, but um, other artists, R.E.M., uh, Elton John, um, I think there were several that kind of came together and they basically put out a public statement saying, quit using our songs. Again, legally, they're being used legally because of the BMI license and so forth. But the artists want to make it clear that just because you hear these songs at the rally does not mean that they endorse that candidate's particular viewpoint. Okay. Now, this is a song came out in 1989 from one of my favorite albums of all time, Full Moon Fever. Absolutely. I think I wore that CD out. Oh, I I definitely wore mine out. Sometimes this album is referred to as um, The Traveling Wilburys Volume 2 
which is why there is no Traveling Wilburys Volume 2. If you thought they were just being quirky when they went from 1 to 3, um, they weren't. Uh, so many of the Wilburys worked on this album. This is a Tom Petty solo album. Yes, members of the Heartbreakers um, appear on this album, but um, it, most of the songs were co-written with Jeff Lynne from ELO yep. and Tom Petty. Uh, George Harrison plays all over this album, and so it really is just a, it's just a great, great record. Um, but the kind of the impetus for the, the album, uh, for the writing of the album, and I didn't know this, but, but Petty, his house was burned down by an arsonist. You're kidding. And it was never proven at the time, but there's a theory out there that 11 days before this tragedy, he was asked by a tire company, I believe, to use one of his songs in the commercial, and he, you know, Patty was never big on using oh, yeah, his yeah. song for commercial never. purposes, and so even though they offered him a big sum of money, he turned them down, and so they had to record one of those sound-alike songs that use similar chords and similar instrumentation to remind people that song and it was a little bit too close to I Won't Back Down uh, no I'm sorry close to the song I don't remember what the actual song was and so then he sued and won the judge said that yeah it was a sound alike a little too much of a sound alike and so 11 days after winning this lawsuit um, it was determined that an arsonist set a fire now Petty and his family they escaped fine um, but he was so shaken by this that he just he was distraught, and so that's why he ended up writing a lot of these songs that appear. So I Won't Back Down really is a response to uh, his life in, being in danger. Huge Petty fan. His, I was devastated when when he uh, passed. In fact, he had just toured. He had come to Cleveland again uh, for the Wildflowers. Um, uh, it was like the anniversary tour for Wildflowers, and um, I, I, you know, I wanted to get tickets, and then I, I just for whatever reason didn't do it. And I, you know, it was one of the. I, I even remember turning to my wife and saying, "The next time he comes, I am definitely seeing this man live." And not, I, I said that, and then I kid you not, two weeks later, his death was announced. So well, You and I have been saying since high school, and maybe you've done it since, I haven't, that we need to go see uh, James Taylor. He comes to Blossom every yeah, summer. Yeah, still have not seen Taylor. And I think it was probably in the um, early 90s that I said, if we don't go, he's probably, you know, one of these years, he's not going to be around. It's 2020. He's still, I think, touring yeah, at Blossom so. once a year, and we still haven't gone to still see him. Gone to see him. So we need to do that. But yeah, probably. Uh, but lyrics go, you know, well, I know what's right. I got just one life in a world that keeps pushing me around. I'll stand my ground and I won't back down. So very, very simplistic lyrics. Um, 
And this one also, feel like I mentioned, features George Harrison guitar. Hit number 12 on Billboard. And Petty said that he almost didn't release it. Um, he felt this initial hesitation about releasing the song because of its really clear, unabashed message. There's really no way to kind of reinterpret this song. No. It, it's pretty clear. But that's why it lends itself, again, to being used for so many situations. For instance, it was used um, like rallying cries. Uh, well, at, after 9-11, there were 9-11 tributes. Oh, yeah. Um, after, in fact, after the Vegas terrorist attack that happened a few years ago, um, Petty actually passed away the day after that Vegas shooting. And so on Saturday Night Live that week, Jason Aldean, who was performing in Las Vegas during the shooting, sang Petty's I Won't Back Down as a tribute to both the victims of the shooting and Tom Petty himself. Mm, that's cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, yeah, no, nah, what a tragic loss. And, and, you know, the thing about Petty, he's one of those artists that even if you weren't a fan, nobody disliked Tom Petty. Correct. I know he's not an artist that anybody turned the radio station when he came on. No. And you know, he was another one whose voice was not, you know, but was, was he Springsteen? Was he new wave? Was he rock? Was he, he was all of those. He things. was all those things. And you know, he, he had the unfair comparison always to Springsteen. Like Mellencamp has the unfair comparison always to Springsteen who, you know, every one of them was going to be the next Bob Dylan. <laughs> of course, Springsteen is of course, you know it but um yeah no petty he was just he he was he was the real deal i i I miss his music i wish he was still around without question okay well my number 16 song let me tell you what it was damn near impossible to find information on this song or the artist because i it's a song that everyone from gen x knows it's a song that has been now used in over over 15 animated uh, episodes, cartoons. It has been used in over 20 video games. It has been used in over three dozen television shows. I have no idea where you're going with this. Okay, well, here's the catch to all that. Nobody knows. Most people don't know. They can't even name the person who sings it, okay? Okay. Let me give you some help. Yeah. So, Gen Xers may not know his name, but chances are they do remember the contribution that he made to the 1984 film, The Karate Kid. Oh, oh, yeah. This was on my list. This was on my list. Was it? Yeah. Joe Esposito. Joe Esposito. Yes, yes. So it was his song, You're the Best, that accompanied Daniel Sun as he defeated Cobra Kai opponents one by one at the High Valley Karate I'm glad you picked this because it pained me to take it off. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, this was one. It's the poor man's Rocky song. It it is, yeah. And, And for years, moviegoers, you know, they were so critical of the song and the criticism was because of the lyric. The song says, history repeats itself. Try and you'll succeed. Never doubt that you're the one and you can have your dreams, which made absolutely no sense. Because after all, it was Daniel LaRusso's first karate competition. So how exactly was history repeating itself, right? It's kind of what happened when your survivor scenario, but didn't go as well for Joe Esposito. Right. Well, <laughs> Yes, but but again, it took forever to find information on this. It turns out that that line, there's a perfectly good explanation oh, yeah. for it, okay? The answer to the question rests in the movie soundtrack from which Joe Esposito was booted. Oh, okay. okay? Oh. Because I just got done talking about a band named Survivor. Right. Right? Well, Esposito originally was chosen to write the song for Rocky Three. Interesting. And it is a poor man's Rocky song. Yes, You're the Best was going to be used, and then Stallone changed his mind, and he went with Survivor. So this song then was just out there. 
<laughs> okay. Um, yeah, it was replaced at the last minute by, by Eye of the Tiger. And, you know, you know, history repeating itself, that, that was, the, you know, that was the history that was destined right. for, the, for, for Stallone, right? So interestingly, Esposito, as an aside, also worked on the soundtrack for Rocky IV. And he had written and recorded a song called Hearts on Fire Which for is this on the soundtrack. installment. Yep, yep. But his original version of the song was replaced by John Cafferty's version. Oh, that's right, because John, because he's yeah, he was yeah. the songwriter, but John Cafferty yeah, John performs Caff- it. You're right. Yeah, the label, um, and, <laughs> poor and Joe, was, and it was political, absolutely political, because the Scotty Brothers Management Company, uh, Cafferty was you know signed to their to their management company. So twice in the boxing world, he went down with the count. Yeah, <laughs> okay? man. So you're the best was then intended. It was going to be used in the movie Flashdance. Okay, but it was replaced at the last minute by a song called Maniac by Michael Sambello. Well, the Karate Kid director, John G. Avildsen, he was a true fan of the song, and when he opted to include it in the Ralph Macchio film, he actually stayed true to his word, okay? So that line... I wonder why they didn't just rewrite that line and re-record well, that, the song. That I don't know. I can't speak to that. Hmm. Um, but, and, and lest I forget, Joe Esposito was also tagged to sing a song called I've Had the Time of My Life for the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. It's like the unluckiest yeah, he was person sing it in Hollywood. With, with Donna Summer. Donna Summer, though, turned it down because she didn't like the film's title, Dirty Dancing. And when she turned it down, then the director replaced them both and kicked Esposito out, right? Poor guy. So, can we have him as a guest on the show? I feel I, I would bad love for to. him. I would love to. I'm going to, see, I'm going to see if we can make that happen. So, yeah, I mean, this is a man who has had a share of letdowns, to be sure, but, but don't feel too bad for the guy, okay? Because, again, nobody knows his name. Nobody knows anything about him. Nothing. And it, the information is so sparse. It took me forever to find what I have, and it's not much. But I did learn, you know, don't feel too bad for him. He is actually a three-time Grammy nominee. He scored the, the film Flashdance. He wrote songs for Donna Summer, Aretha Franklin, LaBelle, Stephen Stills, among others. Okay. He's recorded four successful albums. And well, he, how, he, how successful? Well, We've never heard they, of them. Well, two of them were, were nominated for Grammys for mm-hmm. album of it, the year. Well, they must be a genre then. Yeah, it, it, it has to okay. be. I've, I've not heard them. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it really, you know, Esposito has said, you know, if, if, even if nobody knows who he is, he, he bears no will. <laughs> so he's also, by the way, the father of former Colorado Rockies pitcher Mike Esposito. Hmm. You know, so th- he has that to his credit. Uh, but, but Esposito has said that, you know, it's, it's simply the ups and downs of, of the music business. And, you know, he said that's why when something like You're the Best or Flashdance or whatever else comes along, you really have to appreciate it. Try to be best, cause you're only a man, and a man's got to learn to take it. Try to believe, though the going gets rough, that you gotta hang tough to make it. History repeats itself, try and you succeed. Never doubt that you're the one, and you can have your dream. You're the best around. Nothing's gonna ever keep you down. You're the best. Oh, and nothing's gonna ever keep you down. You're the best. Oh,
He said he's been very lucky to have done uh, some of the things he has been involved with. He has no regrets. And that, that I think, is, the, is really the true calling card of a man who goes down swinging. You know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he literally has been knocked out so many times, but he gets back up. Uh, today, sadly, well, not sadly, because I, I, from what I've read, he enjoys it. He now pretty much performs Vegas. He's a lounge singer yeah. in Vegas. So if you're ever in Vegas and you find where he's performing, he might just... Agree uh, to be on our podcast. Agree, well, maybe, yeah. But he, but he, he certainly, he might just agree to... You know, at least, you know, sing the anthem as you're kicking some punk's ass uh, in, in the. Casino. I had that soundtrack so, as uh, on vinyl. That I'd Rocky for it, but I had also had um, Karate Kid. Really, I, I and that song I listened to over and yeah, over and over again. I, I love the song, and it's so iconic. It's not even well. Here's here's the funny thing. It's not a great song. It's not a great song. It's not a great song. <laughs> it's, but. I, it, it's his singing is okay. You know, the lyrics are. Okay, I mean it's it's medi- but it does pump you up. It oh it does. It is it is anthemic, and it, you know you you listen to it, and you are you're ready to go. But it really is not a great song. But right. but you know Gen X, I mean who especially now Cobra Kai, you know the the series has has brought. Now are they do they use that song in the series? I, I do not. Seen the I do not believe they've used it yet. I would not be well. Maybe they did. Maybe they did in the first season. I, I mean, I remember I, the song from the first time I saw the movie. Oh yeah, because yeah, yeah. the refrain is pretty clear. You're the oh, best. Yeah. And any kid, I mean, I was what thirteen, probably or twelve, yeah. ten. I don't know how old I was when it came out, but you know, you, you're the best. That's you need oh, that yeah. encouragement. That's well, a great. You know, Karate Kid refrain. too. I I remember so vivid. This was a movie. I was just. I was all in. And literally, you know, when he goes up for the swan kick in the film, I remember standing up in the theater, wiping tears and applauding. I mean, I was so into the Karate Kid. Yep. It didn't hurt that I would, you know, was in love with Elizabeth Shue. But but yeah, still, it, it was, you know, it was like, I, um yeah, but it's it's not a great song, but but it's, yeah, it, it's so iconic. And it's a song that literally, I mean, I, if you go to the Wikipedia page, you would, you would not believe this song has been used. That's crazy. Every, in fact, morning radio personalities, radio programming across the country, video, you know, it, it's been entrance music to so many boxers, wrestlers. Uh, you know, it's the song that so many baseball players have used when they come to the plate. The the L.A. Lakers have used it. The the New Jersey Devils. Well, then he's have used he's it. doing fine with royalties. Yeah, a royal. Yeah, he's he's not hurting. But so um, the, a success story in the making. Yeah. So I mean, but but yeah, he. Uh, if you were to walk over to that media shelf over there in my DVD section, you would find Rocky, I'm sorry, you would find Karate Kid 1, 2, 3, and 4. You have four? Really? You have four? It was a box set. Okay. <laughs> what was her uh, name? I don't even know who who takes over for. Oh, no, that was... Um, um, I, I, I don't know that I ever saw part oh, four. Oh, 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 oh. Uh, another Karate Kid. Yeah, of course, she's a huge actress. She won an Oscar for um, Boys Don't Cry. Why can't I think of her name? Oh, that was uh, Hillary Swank. Hillary Swank, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hillary Swank takes yeah. over from my watch. Yeah. I did not yeah. know that. Yeah, very um, young Hillary Swank. Anyway, it was cheaper to buy the box set than to buy just uh, Credit Kid One. I, I could see that. Yeah. Um, now, do you watch Cobra Kai? No. Oh, you got to watch it. Okay. It's, All it, right. Oh, it, it it it's made for our for for the Gen Xers. It is fantastic. In the first season, they do return to the High Valley Karate uh, competition. I. I you're the best might play during that okay I'll during that montage check that out. I can't remember because it's it was three or four years ago now that season one came out but the third season uh, it was on YouTube it was a YouTube uh, produced and exclusive series but it's now been moved to Netflix 
Uh, Netflix has it. And in fact, season three, I think, is coming out in just the next few months. Yeah, so. I might be doing that after Moonlighting then. Yeah, it's, it's uh, Cobra Kai is fantastic. So, But, yep, you're the best. Great. No, I'm glad you included that. was temporarily on my list as well. But I was trying to... I wanted. I didn't want to have just a bunch of Rocky type songs. Mm-hmm. I wanted, to, and I figured you'd at least include "Eye of the Tiger," so that's a nice little bonus there. Okay, uh, this next one isn't typically um, something that I would choose, but it is such an iconic song. Yeah, it is part of Gen X. If there, you know, if there's any song from Gen X in the in the late '80s, it was a song uh, specifically written for a film, and the film was directed by Spike Lee. Do the right thing. Uh-huh. And I'm referring to Fight the, Fight power, the power by yeah. Public Enemy. And I'm not a hip-hop fan, and I wasn't a hip-hop fan at the time, but you don't have to be a hip-hop fan to uh, know the power of this song. Oh, absolutely. And it came out in 89, uh, originally as a single off of the Do the uh, Right Thing soundtrack. Eventually, then, an extended version appears on Fear of a Black Planet by the band. Band, do you refer to uh, hip-hop as a band, group? I don't know the etiquette there. Uh, a ensemble. They would. It's just a hip hop. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, normally it's a hip hop artist. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. What you would? Because they're they're. That gener- is true. They're, 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 I mean, most, there were a lot of band like NWA, but now it's now it's just artistry, artists, and yeah. you know they they partner up. But, right. But you know even when That's you have true. even when you have yeah by Usher and and right. you know I, Ludic, it's not. I don't know. And I, it, I guess a rap. What was Run DMC? They were a rap group. Group, group I guess. So group. group. Let's go group. And, yeah. And, and, and yeah, because band is a little disingenuous. I mean, there, there there is, I believe, a saxophone on this track. Um, that might be the only actual instrument. They were masters uh, of of layering and looping samples. Oh, absolutely. And this is a great example because you didn't have the same computer technology that we have today. Um, to use your, you know, uh, audio workstation on your computer to to do this. Um, we're talking, I think we talked on the show at one point about the difficulty of, of taking tape. I think it was on the Pink Floyd when we talked about Pink Floyd and, and money. Um, taking tape and cutting tape and looping tape. And, you know, a lot of, obviously, hip-hop is huge with sampling. But you'll take a sample, like Kanye will take a sample, and it's a recognizable sample of a song and he may layer a few but Public Enemy and this is a great example of it on the song we're talking they're talking a second or two of sampling to the point where you may not even recognize the song because it's just a bass note you know or it's some type of a, of a drum fill and they'll layer and layer and loop on top of that to make the music for this track
Lyrics go, my beloved, let's get down to business. Mental self-defensive fitness. I love that line. Uh, Bum rush the show. You got to go for what you know to make everybody see in order to fight the powers that be. And so, yeah, it's, again, this song fits (laughs) maybe better than any song for the good fight. It really does. Well, my next song uh, is a song by Andre Day that is probably the most moving and most uh, inspiring song of the last five years, really. Um, Which means I've never heard it. Uh, I bet you have, actually. Hmm, okay. It's been used everywhere. Uh, Andre Day's big break came when Stevie Wonder came upon a live performance and connected her with the production company Buskin. And since her introduction as a Stevie Wonder protege, she, she's remained very humbled, and, and she's truly amazed by her success. She comments that you know, she still feels like an unknown. Um, but for anyone who watches award shows or tributes, I mean, she, she's become a household name, unless you live in Dave's house. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, well, I'm sure uh, my, my daughter in the next room has oh, probably I, I No doubt. Yeah, I'm sure she would. Uh, the lead single from her debut album, the debut album was from 2015. It was titled Cheers to the Fall. And, and the lead singer was the, or the lead single, rather, uh, was the very inspiring Rise Up. Okay. And, and that's on, the song you've chosen? That's the song, Rise Up by Andre Day. Uh, on the strength of that single and the debut album that followed, critics overwhelmingly agreed that she was destined to become the next great soul singer. Um, you know, the album made most critics' top 10 lists for the year, and uh, a number of them, a lot of them, placed her album as the best album the year at the 2016 grammy awards the album was nominated for best r&b album and rise up was nominated for best r&b performance she didn't win either award but but you know her very moving performance um you know at at the award ceremony it was the highlight of, of of the telecast um rise up it peaked at number 10 on the hot r&b charts in early 2016 and the album peaked at number 48 on the billboard 200 the single though uh, ironically enough, because it was so wildly popular and so loved, it never cracked the top 40, okay, until this year. This year, uh, following her performance of the song in the One World Together at Home event that was used to raise money for frontline workers at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, wow. she performed the song and Rise Up suddenly it re-entered the charts and it climbed five years after its initial release it peaked at number four on Billboard in April of this year. Um, Day wrote the song uh, for herself, largely. She had no way of knowing that it would become an anthem of protest and empowerment. Um, you know, she really, uh, she wrote the song as a reminder to herself to persevere. As she said, to, to you know, stand up, because she said, if you, if you can stand up, then you can take the next step. And if you can take the next step, you can take the one after that. And she wrote it at a time when her music and her personal life were both stagnating and after she learned that a very close friend had been diagnosed with cancer. And, and the song started out really as a sort of prayer, honestly. I, she, she said that she simply thought about what she needed to hear to be able to get back on her own feet. And most of the song then came streaming out in the first freestyle recording. And she concedes that you know there are lines in the song that she would normally find cliche, but she has also said that sometimes a good cliche is exactly what you need in a moment of hopelessness. And Rise Up, I mean, it turned out to have a life and a meaning of its own. And the way that she has since used her song's unexpected success to become a voice for the voiceless, 
it's really made her a powerful advocate and a global citizen. In 2016, they performed Rise Up at the Democratic National Convention after the mothers of Trayvon Martin and Sandra Bland took So then the I have heard it then. Yeah. Um, yeah, after the mothers of, of uh, Trayvon Martin and Sandra Bland uh, you know, took the stage to speak about the Black Lives Matter, which was in its infancy at that time, um, movement and, and, and race issues in the U.S., the song then quickly became the unofficial anthem of the Black Lives Matter movement, still is today. Uh, which Day has said is, is just this huge honor. And having the group connect with Rise Up made her more aware that she needed to use her platform to serve the community. The song also then became an anthem, an unofficial anthem for the LGBT community uh, with its simple message of hope and resilience. In an in interview, she said that you know she was deeply moved that the song resonated with the community and noting that she wrote the song about persevering through struggle, criticism, and rejection. She she said it's just a simple message to you know of determination for yourself and others, and she believes that that simplicity is what resonates with people the most. You're broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round, and you can't find a fighter, but I see it in you, so we can walk it out. We gon' walk it out and move on days And I'll rise up, I'll rise like the day I'll rise up, I'll rise unafraid I'll rise up, and I'll do it a thousand times again And I'll Additionally, Rise Up served as the theme to We Will Rise, Michelle Obama's mission to educate girls around the world, which was the outgoing First Lady's film. And she uh, has performed the song in tributes to victims of of very nearly every cause. Um, One that was at its most powerful, uh, she performed it in tribute to the victims of the Orlando Pulse nightclub shooting. Um, Not long after, uh, that she helped shed light on lynching. You remember the the lynching bill that right. uh, was it actually did not pass. I think That's correct. Republicans, some Republicans in the Senate blocked it. Um, but she helped uh, shed light on lynching in America when she covered Billie Holiday's "Strange Fruit" uh, for the Equal Justice Initiative. Uh, she said that too often, you know, we we change the narrative to make things more digestible. But the reality is, if we don't address injustice openly and honestly, we'll, we'll never heal. She followed that by teaming up with Common for Stand Up For Something, um, a song that was featured in the film Marshall, a biopic about the first black U.S. Supreme Court justice. Um, yeah, it's just continued on and on. She's become this huge, powerful, unstoppable force that very nearly every cause, every movement has adopted her and her song as, as their anthem and as their you know, their voice. And, and for good reason. Day's voice, you know, it's, it's often described as haunting. 
and it gives even her most commercially successful work a deeper, more urgent sound than a lot of the youth-driven pop fare that, that's you know on the radio. Uh, it'd be short-sighted to only compare her to like an Amy Winehouse or an Adele. You know, she, yeah, she's got the throwback soulfulness of the former and the chart-topping pop sensibilities of the latter. I mean, there's no denying that. But uh, she really falls between the two. I mean, Day's not quite as blunt or raw as Winehouse. And she's got a little more retro steeze than, than Adele, but, but Day is much more than just the influences of the last decade. I mean, you could say she's also a student of the game in jazz vocals. And, you know, she, her voice, you know, it, it immediately reaches back and, and evokes Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, Nina Simone. But that too really is kind of an inadequate description. I mean, she's, she's just not an artist that can be categorized simply. She, she dabbles in classic jazz, doo-wop, modern pop, R&B, old and new. She has a sensibility that kind of ups the old school vibe. So she, she, you know, she evokes 60s girl group pop one minute and then draws comparison to Lauryn Hill, you know, in the next. Um, but her magic, it just comes from an unparalleled delivery that ma- it masterfully alternates, I think, between the soft and the gritty, between the vulnerable and the alluring. And, you know, that she does this with an inspiring message. It just makes her shine more brightly and and she's going to shine she's going to shine on not just today but for the many tomorrows that are sure to follow i mean it this is just this is a song that it's so moving that i i just had to include it so well it sounds like that this may be the song that needs to be on our list especially since it's uh, so much in our current public yeah. consciousness in fact i would argue when we when we when it comes time to title rise up might be perhaps uh, you know a great choice for the title itself yeah no i, I agree we'll, we'll get there wow yeah All okay right. very you, powerful your last pick sir well my last pick um again i told you i'd like to keep my artists in the alternates list as much as possible but this is one like the springsteen song that i had to bring out in the forefront yep and um, this is another good one to end on it, it is by the girls by indigo girls they're back folks um, from 1999. So again, this is a song that some of you may not know if you didn't keep up with the um, Indigo Girls discography. Again, I will argue that they have gotten stronger as they have gone on their career. And their kind of small window of commercial success in the mid-90s, um, it's a great step in their evolution, but not nearly as powerful as what was to come later. And this is from the album Come On Now Social. Raise your hand high. Don't take a seat. Don't stand aside. This time, don't assume anything. Just go. That, uh, if I would have known this was you know, written in 1999, I would have assumed it was written for today's political climate. Sounds like it. Yep. Um, it, is, it was written by Amy Ray. It's probably, may be the loudest and hardest the Indigo Girls have ever gotten on, on record or on a recording. Um, I mean, it's not heavy metal by any stretch of the imagination, but it is very, very hard and loud, not what you would expect. I mean, if, if you didn't know Indigo Girls and you played this, most people would never guess that it was Indigo Girls, okay? Uh, Amy Ray really takes her love of her punk roots and pulls it into this particular song. There's a lot of anger in this song, but it is a call to youth. And it is a, a, a connecting of generations. Um, she starts off by, you know, by connecting her grandmother, who is a suffragette, blacklisted for her publication, and then connects it to the students that not only back then, but still today are organizing walkouts and protests, 
most recently for gun violence. We saw down in Florida. We saw the young people uh, go on above just you know walking out, but but organizing these protests where they speak to the media very eloquently about the the plight of gun violence in their schools. And this is Amy Ray's way of saying encouraging the youth to continue. So just like a hundred years ago, and we're actually at the hundredth anniversary of the suffragette movement in this country. Right. And so she's trying, again, 20 years ago, but she's making this connection between the women that uh, protested in the streets and marched for, for the right to vote to the same thing that's happening today with young people. And it is, it's, it's a rallying cry. And again, raise your hands, don't take a seat, right? Uh, the, this generation, everyone wants to say that they don't care and that, that the kids are um, uh, they're uh, apathetic and they just don't care about the world around them, which is not true. Right. And we see more and more of participation in the political process by young people. Through the dust bowl, through the dead. Grandma was a suffragette. Blacklisted for her publication. Blacklisted for my generation. Go, go, go. I love the, the line at the end then in the, in the bridge or in the middle eight when they say, um, did they tell you you would come undone when you try to touch the sun, undermine the underground, you're too old to care, you're too young to count. And I just love how that is a, a statement back at the authority, what have you, telling kids that, yes, you don't get involved. Nope, you're not, you're too young, you're too old, you're not, you know, don't, you're not going to make a difference, you're wasting your time. And so this is that rallying crowd to the youth is saying, don't listen to those voices. Don't listen to people that say you're naive. Don't listen to people that say you're wasting your breath. You do have a power in number. Hmm. And when I remember that, the, the one walkout from the Parkland shooting, uh, Emma Gonzalez, I believe is her name, uh, she had shaved her head in, oh, yeah. in protest and yeah. she spoke one of the most impassioned speeches I have ever heard yeah. from anyone, much less a youth who had just lost classmates and been through an awful school shooting. And I hope, and I know she has, because I know the millions of Twitter followers she has, has inspired other students, other young people to also have that courage and to stand up and to fight the good fight, as is our subject today, because our youth are our better angels. They are. And we only progress as a culture because the next generation comes around and they see the faults in the earlier generation and we continue to evolve. All right. So that was your last pick. What what uh, what alternates did you bring? Well, I'm, I'm a little disappointed because the, the what two do we have two? We I had think two matches. matches they were both on mine. So I don't get to choose any of my alternates. And I was kind of hoping to be able to choose, choose some alternates, but I can't. Anyway, here's here. Um, the four. I think I had four. Um the Stand by the Alarm. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Alarm. Don't know that one. 
Um, the alarm was a, a, a very much like U2. Uh, in fact, they opened for U2 in the first American tour in 1983, Tour of America, that U2 took. Okay. Um, kind of a Clash-inspired, you know, post-punk um, uh, rock alternative band that just never quite found the success that U2 found, okay? But their beginnings were very, um, very similar. And somebody gave a copy to Mike Peters, the front man for the alarm of The Stand by Stephen King. And he read the uh, the book and wrote a song. And it literally name drops Trash Can Man and the Walkin' Dude, which of All course right. is Randall Flagg. Stu and Fran are in there too. Well, or? they don't mention them, <laughs> okay. but 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 the song and it's, it's simplistic and it's in its um, nature. But it's simply about you know that time when we all must finally, when the lines are drawn, we need to make that stand. Interesting. Okay. And that God doesn't always call us to win the fight. But like in the end of the book, we're just called to make a stand and sometimes God will do the rest. And so it's that idea of, you know, and, and it's, it's melodramatic. Come on down, meet your maker. Come on down, make the stand. And, you know, when you first hear it, it just it does sound really melodramatic. But when you put it in, in context with not only the, the book itself, but the message that could apply to any type of fight for social justice, it works. Yeah, it it works. It's just a it's just a it's a, a, a I dare say a fun type of fight the power type song if that makes sense or at least I shouldn't say fighting the power a fun sort of standing up for what's right because you feel um, justified you you feel like the, you are surrounded you listen to the song and you almost imagine you're standing on that line of what is right with thousands of other people that have all chosen to make that stand and now you're ready for battle you're ready to go in and fight the war. Because you know you have good people along your sides. I like it. I, um, I, I any Stephen King connection. That was from 1983. Okay. Uh, had to get my Decemberists in, but I put them on the alternates <laughs> list. This is a song. Of all the songs, though, this one really fits thematically. It sh- probably should have been on my main list. There were two reasons why I didn't include it. One, because I didn't want to include the Decemberists too many times. Two, because this was not a single, and there's no like single retrospective for... Um, the Decemberist yet and like we've talked about sometimes album versions of songs don't segue very well on a mixtape right okay and um, this song is followed by a two or three minute little tiny quiet acoustical jam that it's a long story but basically they were the person that owned the studio was out on their porch and she was uh, washing her dog or something and Chris Funk the guitarist played it anyway they started this little jam type of thing and they liked it and so they kind of threw it almost like a hidden track kind of thing at the end well I have no way of removing that and unless we chose this song and put it at the end of side one at the end of side two it would really break up the sequencing of the songs gotcha okay but the song itself in fact if there would have been a single version of the song I would have put it in the list okay. and it's called This Is Why We Fight it's off 2011's The King is Dead. We already took a song from that album with Rocks in the Box Oh, that one, um, for the Labor Day episode. This is why we fight. Uh, this is why we fight. We lie awake. This is why. This is why we fight. This is why when we die, we die with our arms unbound. So it's that idea, even if you know you're going to lose, it's better to lose having fought for what was right than to not fight at all. And that's kind of why this one's a little bit different than some of the other songs. Because, yeah, we all want victory and we all hope that we will win what we fight. But this sentiment here is even if you know it's a completely lost cause and there's no way you're going to win the battle, fighting for what is right is the the point. Kind of like making the stand, right? You make that stand and that's what's important. 
Um, frontman Colin Malloy said the song was not written about a specific conflict in mind. Um, a lot of people tried to apply it to certain conflicts at the time. He said, I just, I think it's more of a song for somebody who's up against great odds, whether it's political or social. And this song is important to me too. It's, it, it, I love the song. I don't rank it in my top 10 favorite December songs. It's great, but it's important to me because it's the first time I ever encountered the Decemberist. Oh, this is the, the intro. Uh, it, was a, it was a video. I'd heard of the Decemberist. I'd not heard them. And the video for this, which is a dystopian uh, survival video with children, children surviving in a kind of a post, almost like a post-nuclear, post post-COVID, I don't know. I mean, basically the world's gone to crap and, and these children are surviving in these tribes, which is the, the video. It's a very interesting video. Very Lord but of it, the Flies. Yeah, oh yeah, in a way. Okay. Uh, post-apocalyptic Lord of Flies would be a good way to describe it. Um, it was some cable channel I think I've mentioned before that we used to have that would show new videos um, uh, in the evening. And I, it came on and I remember thinking to myself, wow, I really like this. It sounds a lot like something REM might do if they were on today. And I looked up, and sure enough, it was the Decemberists who had been recommended to me. And this album is kind of modeled after. This whole album was kind of uh, written as, um, not an homage, but influenced by R.E.M. So if you're an R.E.M. fan, you'll definitely like The King is Dead. Uh, two more real quick that I'm not going to be able to choose, but I'll put on the list. Of course, Talking About a Revolution from Ch- Tracy Chapman. Mm great song uh, another local um, with Clevelander uh, this was the follow up to Fast Cars was not a hit in the United States um, got a little bit of airplay was was a big hit internationally a lot of people uh, really took to this song I think most people in Gen X has probably heard this song even oh, yeah. if it wasn't a big yeah. hit um, you know Chapman's music's informed by our own experience uh, growing up in Cleveland during the whole forced uh, school busing um, occurrence that happened in the 70s and the racial violence, of course, that still exists. Um, she said, quote, I found myself in the middle of a race riot when I was about 14 years old, and I found someone pointing a gun at me and telling me to run or they would shoot me. And that sentiment echoes in this song. Even though the verses talk about people uh, who are hungry and people who are poor rising up, um, there's that one refrain that just says, you need to run, you need to run, you need to run, you need to run. And so that idea of somebody at 14 years old, can you imagine having a firearm uh, pointed at you? Yeah. It's I'm, one thing to say, like, like in Go, 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 it's one thing to say, you know, you, know, you don't count, you're a kid, you don't count. But she literally had a gun pointed at her saying, run, get out of here because you don't count. <sighs> Finally, um, Don't Give Up by Peter Gabriel off of his huge uh, album. So it featured Kate Bush. It was kind of a duet between the two. And uh, it was actually written, um, he had seen uh, the whole, I think it was a museum um, featuring the works of a Dorothea Lange who photographed the Dust Bowl families at the time. And I always heard it just as a song about I, 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 at the time, thought maybe it was even about suicide, about someone who was thinking about taking their own life. But really, it was intended to be about not giving up, maybe as a call back to those people in history saying, don't give up. Okay. But it can be applied to all sorts of situations. Yeah, I've, I've never known what the impetus, you know, what the catalyst was for, right. for Gabriel on that one. But it, it's, it's, a, it's a great, it's actually one of the great duets. Oh, yeah. Honestly. Um, and I didn't include those last two because they're a little bit slower, especially Don't Give Up. And if we're trying to make a mixtape that's really inspiring and trying to elevate our mood, you know, when things are bad and to inspire us. Um, not that this one brings you down because the lyrically it's Don't Give Up. It's supposed to be encouraging. But the song itself is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bit down there. <laughs> it's not the most inspiring musically. And that's why I didn't choose that. Okay, and those are my, my four alternates. What about you? All right, well, I am to my alternates list. I'll, I'll run down my alternate choices that I have left. I have We Are the Champions, 
by Queen, um, which probably needs no explanation. I mean, it's, you know, Mercury, you know, he wrote what probably is the greatest victory song of all time. You know, he said he was thinking about football when he wrote it. He wanted a participation song, something that the fans could latch on to. Of course, you know, he gave it a more theatrical subtlety than an ordinary football chant, and not surprising, really, everything the man did was, you know, operatic. Um, of course, it's paired, right? It, it, you know, very deliberately, it's paired with We Will Rock You. Um, Which is why, by the way, I didn't include it. It was one of the first ones I thought of. Yeah. But I knew, again, um, even though we could separate it because they're separate tracks, um, any any classic rock fans know that you cannot separate these two when you play yeah. them. Any radio station, any self respecting right. radio station plays both. We are the champions, and we will rock you. Yeah, no, it, it, yeah. I mean, it's it's very intentionally. Uh, they're both very short songs, and together they they were a double side A. You know, on, on the on the single, it really was was Mercury's. Um, no, it, it was, you know, like Frank Sinatra's power ballad, "My Way." Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's much the same thing, and. Yeah, we'll probably get some flack for not including that because that's one probably people will assume that we'll have on right. our list. Yeah, and and you know it's, uh, but yeah, I, you know it's always been popular as a victory chant and among sports fans, but it, not not only because it's triumphant nature, but because it's it's just a, the song has the striking ability to unify. I mean, I, I take the scene, I, I reimagine the scene from Live Aid in '85, and, right? You know, watching seventy thousand people sway in unison to, to champions. You know. Um, but that is one that I could could use. I also have Fighter by Christina Aguilera. Um, I remember that one. Yeah, she uh, she wrote the song. It was for the, her sophomore album, Stripped. And it, it really was a her response to, you know, so many uh, things that, that she had been through. Um, you know, she, she of course, uh, was a victim of child celebrity you know, as a, as a musketeer, and we know what happens to most, you know, young children that become, you know, uh, stars at, at a young age. Um, you know, it, it's just not a biographical account. You, you have the, the effects of child celebrity. Uh, she grew up in a very abusive home. She was ridiculed and, and often uh, belittled by her peers in school. She forced control. She was under forced control by her label. And Fighter. That seems to be a theme. Yeah, it really does. And and Fighter was just her blanket, you know, response once she was free to to write the song she wanted to, uh, to to all of the the obstacles that she had overcome. I have Break Out by Swing Out Sister, which I had, I love wow. I love this song. And I'm yeah, not, that's I'm a not good gonna, tune. I'm not gonna use it for this one, but at some point I want to do just a blanket like, you know, eighties yeah, you know, I, I it, it'll make its way because it's a song. I thought of it. Actually, there were a lot of '80s tunes that immediately came to mind. I had I had like "Men in Motion" from Saint Almost Fire, and I had "Break yeah. My Stride" by Matthew. Yeah, there's Ryan. so many. You, you could know, almost do a second part around this. You one. really could. But I, "Swing Out, Sister." When I when I thought of it, I realized I had not heard this song in probably 30 years, and I listened to it and. Man, it is every bit as catchy. And That's just, a great song. It is a fun. Is it? Is it late song. late eighties, early nineties? Uh mid mid eighties. Mid eighties. Okay. Um, yeah, it's just so much fun, and and her voice. I mean, it just, oh, it's heavenly. But you know what I found though is there really isn't any. You know, so much of the show is driven on trivia and background. There really isn't anything. Are they the true one hit wonder? Are they? Uh... Um, in the U.S., yes. Okay. 
internationally, especially in Japan, they they put out like ten albums. Japan just loves the yeah. artists that don't make they it do. over here. Japan, I mean, Swing Out Sisters had like over ten albums, and Japan and in Japan, every single one has been this huge, huge hit. Um, but yeah, I break out. I mean, it's just you know, it, it's a very simple song, but it's upbeat and it's. I don't know. Maybe I will go with that one. Um, I have Fight Song by Rachel Platten. Um, don't know that one. Which, um, you know, it, it's it, it is her fight song. <laughs> Basically, she she had gotten to a point in her career she, for over twelve years. She had been recording albums, uh, paying for them for their release on out of her own pocket, performing uh, nightly to just a handful of people that would come to see her on stage. Uh, always had the big dreams that she she wanted you know to share her music and she had finally come to a point where she was about to just call it quits because you know 12 years no success no radio play no sponsorships i mean she really thought it just wasn't going to happen and fight song was the song that she wrote in response to her dreams being you know crushed to to, to being to that feeling of being defeated but then fight song became an immediate success Largely with the help of Taylor Swift, actually, she uh, Taylor Swift met uh, Rachel Platten in Pittsburgh, and uh, about two weeks before she was going to be performing in Philadelphia, and uh, basically uh, she she met her uh, behind stage. I'm not entirely sure how Rachel Platten got backstage, but but the two of them met and they started. You know, Taylor Swift somehow knew the song because um, you know it, it, it had some airplay, some moderate airplay. Um, and they started singing it together uh, backstage. And then Taylor Swift invited her to go to, you know, Philadelphia to sing with her on stage, the song. But also when they were just chilling backstage and singing together, Taylor Swift recorded it and put it on her Twitter, which had 34 million followers. And uh-huh. Rachel Platten became, you know, the next big thing. And this was her fight song. And, she she won the fight, which was very unexpected. Oh, I know the song. Like a, this is my fight song, my dumb yeah, dumb yeah, song. It's, uh, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, okay, I've heard. Like a small boat. Yes. On, on the yes, on the I've heard that. Yeah. One. Uh, and then I had the authority song by John Mellencamp. Yeah. Um, yeah, I never would have thought of that one yeah, too. Which, Another good Gen Xer. Yeah, right yeah. in sweet spot. It's basically his his version of the Bobby Fuller classic. I fought the law. Right, the law right. One, but you know, he, great video too. Yeah, yeah. He's in the boxing little ring, kid in the boxing ring. White, yeah, and, and, you know, he says, you know, I fight authority. Authority always wins. But he gets up and he continues. Yeah, you know, why? Well, yeah, that's a good he one. Always comes out grinning. Um, mm, yeah. So of the, I'll tell you what, you didn't get to pick yours, but I'll let you pick mine of those oh. songs. What would you want to end? Run, run down them real quick here. Uh, one more time. We are the champions. Yep. Um, and Fighter by Christina Aguilera. Yep. Uh, Swing Out Sister Breakout. The Authority Song by John Mellencamp. And Fight Song. Th- I'm going Fight. Authority Song. Authority Song? That all right with you? That, hey, it's on my it's on Yeah, my let's do that. All right. Authority Song by Mellencamp.
came to realize that so many of my songs this time are newer songs. And here we're, we're calling ourselves the Gen X mixtape. And I, you know, I, I wanted to get the 80s, the 90s, that well, 70s, 80s, 90s presence. And it's there. But I, I just, I, I felt compelled. There were so many songs in the 2000s that I really felt, you know, had to, to find a place that, you know, a lot of the Gen X stuff kind of took a back seat. Of course, you took two of mine with Invincible. And, yeah, I did. You know, uh, well, but see, I didn't, it, I didn't but, even think about Authority songs. That was perfect. Yeah. So, and again, I, I, if, if Authority song wasn't on there, I would have chosen We Are the Champions. Not that We Will Rock You can't also be interpreted to be a fight song, too. Well, it's it's there. It's but there, it's, but it's, not, it's more ambiguous. But uh, yeah, we'll just, I, we might get some flack for that. Well, and we'll definitely put it on our alternates list. Right. Um, but. Uh, but no, I. But yeah, swing out, sister, man. I, I just I I fell in love with that song all over again. Listen, that's to a it. great song. So yeah, we, it, at some point we need to do an '80s themed show of some kind. And I'm swing out, sister is going to make my list. I'm, I'm I've already decided that when when the time comes. So very cool. All right, well we have to sequence this thing. Yep, yep, we do. Uh, <laughs> that's always the task. Which. Uh, you know, some weeks it's very easy. This might be easy. I don't know. But I'm looking at the titles and I'm thinking this is a very, uh, we've had eclectic mixes before, of course, but um, we're, we're all over the place on this. Um, so, folks, we, we, we will be right back. Let's, let's do this. All right. And we're back just like that. And we have our sequence for the Good Fight mixtape. Yeah, now th- this time uh, we really had three categories of songs uh, musically. Uh, we had songs that were bold, more unconventional musically. They were they were more daring and and you know they were more grandiose. Um, we had the ballads, slower songs that you know we we needed to kind of wave uh, you know in and out of segueing uh, throughout. And then we had a handful of rockers. Most of them were eighties. Pure '80s rock, so we had three different areas, and I think we we transitioned very well between. Yeah, the two I think the we three. did. Yeah. So, um, all right. Well, to begin, we we start our mixtape with "Eye of the Tiger" by Survivor. Um, I, I think that's just fitting, really. Um, immediately into "Unstoppable" by Foxy Shazam. And then into Carry On Wayward Son by Kansas, Shake It Out by Florence and the Machine, Get Up, Stand Up by Bob Marley and the Wailers, Authority Song by John Mellencamp, Go by the Indigo Girls, Fight the Power. Now, we we actually chose, uh, when we were looking at this, we actually chose uh, Fight the Power, uh, the 2020 remix, which... Um, when we were just playing through, we, we, we discovered it. And uh, for two reasons. One, uh, the original version by Public Enemy, it does not fade out very well. It, it's a very abrupt ending that we, we thought would kind of be jarring, uh, you know, segueing uh, into the next song. Um, the, the remix actually has a very nice fade out. And it actually uh, not only is Public Enemy present, but but a number of current rappers are are that they join in on the song. So uh, we did go with the remix, but we'll, we'll put the original on the yeah outro definitely list. right. So um, fight the power goes into lose yourself by Eminem, and we end side one of our mixtape with rise up by Andre Day. Side two begins with eyes on the prize by Vod and the Villains. That moves into This Is Me by Kiala Seto. 
from the greatest showman uh that then uh transitions to pat benatar invincible the theme to uh the legend of billy jean um i may watch that some night if i'd had a, if i've had a few cocktails i, I, I might i might have to go back and watch it too it's been years years since i've seen it uh invincible uh is followed by you're the best by joe bean esposito <laughs> What, I feel what, so bad. We didn't refer to him as Bean in the show. No, we no, we, we left out his nickname. Yeah, yeah. Bean. Um, <laughs> that then, uh, that goes into We're Not Gonna Take It by Twisted Sister. And if we can find the Oh Come All You Faithful version of that that you mentioned, we'll also oh, include sh- that on the alternatives yeah, list. I don't, I don't know if uh, Spotify would have it. They, they might. Um, all right, then, uh, The Rising by Bruce Springsteen, Into Praying by Kesha, Just One Victory by Todd Rundgren, I Won't Back Down by Tom Petty. And we end our mixtape with what I think is one of the greatest closers. Um, and I say that as a DJ who has often closed the party with And it's it. closed The Sopranos and it closed Rock yeah, of Ages it's, it's, and it closed yeah, all sorts of it's, Glee. It's, it's yeah, closed it's, so many it's, different it's, productions. It's, yeah, but, I mean, it kind of serves its purpose. We end the mixtape with Don't Stop Believing by Journey. So in all, I mean, it, it's... I would say it's very. We've had quite a few eclectic mixes, but but this one, I don't know. It, it's a very, it's a very inspiring. I think list. it will. That's the whole yeah. point of this. Which which was the point? We we needed, um, you know, we we really wanted a a theme that, you know, could could kind of give us a boost, uh, kind of boost morale and and give us reason to keep going because it's it's just, you know, everything feels so monotonous really I, I just feel boxed in and this playlist uh, is designed to try and give you give you uh, a moment of uh, to pause and, and realize you know reevaluate and renew and hope and hope yeah and hope um, yeah Pandora's box itself still contained hope so with all the evils in the world you know hope has not escaped us so um, no I think we did well alright cool alright well it is time for the soundtrack segment and I go first this week. Yep. So, Dave, if you want to read your question, and I will do my best here. You go first. Oh, you mean you answer first is what you're saying. I thought I answered first. You do. Do. I, do I read first? I don't know. I mean, I went first with my pick today. So what does that mean for the soundtrack segment? <laughs> How about you read your question All right, to me? I'll read. All so, right. yeah, from now on, we'll, we'll just draw a line and say whoever... Pick, uh, gives their musical pick first. They will be the first, first. to okay. read the card. Okay. Alan, you have just sold a successful company you built with your bare hands from the ground up. As you walk to the soon-to-be-empty halls and think about all the people that helped you make it what it is, the challenges and the victories, what song plays in the background? That's a very loaded question. Am I? Am I happy with the sale or am I regretting the sale? I mean, when Assuming I'm, that you sold it, we're going to guess that you probably made a nice little profit okay. and now you don't have to run the company anymore. Okay. But you still have fond memories of that company. Okay, so I have fond memories. Um, it was a little dot-com startup that you sold to Google for a couple million dollars. Oh, then I'm, I'm very good with the sale. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, all right. Um, then let's say I'm, I'm thinking back over uh, the memories that have come and gone. Um, how about uh, oh, this is a this is a downer, but but it but it works. I will remember you by Sarah McLaughlin. 
<laughs> hey, that works. That works. All right, good. Hey, if you want something more upbeat, I got. Yeah, no, no, I, I got no, stuff that good. I could, you know. But but I'm just thinking if I'm thinking fondly on the memories and the people that have come and gone, and you know, it's if I'm thinking about puppies looking at me with sad eyes from. But that was a different song. That was that was, <laughs> that was in the was arms of an angel. angel. Yeah, so I will remember angel. you. That's that no, works. That's true. I just Sarah McLaughlin. Anything slow just immediately takes me back to you know dogs being put down. But but I am you know the message of the song though is I don't I, put down dogs by the way. I compliment them anytime I have an opportunity. As you should. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, you ready? Yes. All right. You are flying. Freedom is is. All, all around you you feel uh, limitless and powerful and you are on the back of a dragon in the nighttime sky what song is accompanying your ride hmm interesting hmm what plays as you ride the okay so Daenerys what 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 song are you playing <laughs> Oh he boy, I'd have that. Now. I'd he have that some soaring anthem. Oh man, that's dragons a, of Pern. You know, thinking about all the dragon titles now. Falcor. You know, this could be the never-ending story. Um, okay, okay. This doesn't lend itself to any type of like classical classical mythology or anything. But I want a song that has a soaring chorus, a song that has the dips and dives, and has different parts to it. You know, that just kind of encompass into this entire looping dragon ride that I'm on. I'm going with Mr. Blue Sky from ELO. It works, although it was the nighttime sky. Oh, it was the nighttime yeah, sky? Yeah, it's, you're riding, you're... Yeah, I, you're, I didn't hear the nighttime sky. Yeah. All right, all right. If you prefer, hey, we, no, no, we no, can no, alter no, the no. question. We can, we can be... Well, I mean, I could go with hours. the ultimate nighttime driving song, which is In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins. But that doesn't lend itself to as much of the soaring, dipping. But at nighttime, I'm not sure I want to do a whole lot of soaring and dipping and diving. I kind of want just like a nice vibe. So let's let's rewrite the question, okay? It's you're you're flying in the air in the daytime for. If all it's daytime, city. it's Mr. Blue Sky. Mr. Blue if it's Sky. nighttime, it's in the air tonight by Phil Collins. Okay. There we go. Well, I, you can still do a few wild maneuvers <laughs> when the drums. That's true. Go, That's true. Yeah, I um, hmm. In the air tonight. It's a very, it's a very angry song. So I'm, I'm just thinking. Have you ever listened to it oh, at nighttime? Oh, oh yeah, it's, driving it down is, the highway. It is one of the best driving yes. songs. Yeah, I'm just thinking. You know, if, if I have a fire breathing dragon, I'm in the air control, tonight. I'm in the air. I'm on a dragon. If I were to see you drowning, well, I would spit yeah, I'm not a lyrics you. guy. You know, I don't care about that. <laughs> you know, true story. Um, you know, you, you know, I DJ, right? Uh, well, do, do you okay. DJ? I do oh, DJ. Okay. Um, you are not the only person who does not listen to lyrics, Dave. Because I'll tell you what, I could make a list of couples who have chosen, like especially for their first dance, the most inappropriate songs imaginable. And by the way, I would if I were to choose a song for an occasion like that, you better believe I'm going to pay attention to the lyrics. Right. But you would be amazed how many do not, because there was a couple about oh boy. three okay. years ago. Yeah who chose In the Air Tonight as their first dance. <laughs> no, they didn't. They did. And I sat there and I explained to them, you know, do you know what this song is about? And I, I explained it to them in, in very specific, uh, you know, detail. And their jaws dropped. <laughs> and I kid you not. They kept it as they their kept first it. Well, dance. hey, you know what? Just they they, stick with it they love the song and they're like, well, no one listens to those lyrics. And I thought to myself, you're going to be surprised. <laughs> do, do you remember right. the wedding dance song at my wedding? 
Don't feel bad because I don't remember yours, but it was nobody does it better, Carly Simon. No, no, that wasn't the first dance. No, it's one of my top bands. So I swear you guys danced nope, to that though. Nope, nope, nope. You didn't nope, do nope, Carly nope, Simon nope, at your. Nope, nope, nope. I don't even think we played Carly Simon, frankly. Nobody does it better. Was I swear? If we that was did, if we did, if we did, and we may have for the father daughter portion of the dance where my wife danced with my father-in-law that may have been that may be correct okay then i'm i'm remembering indigo girls <laughs> surprise surprise <laughs> what is it really power of two power okay. of two by indigo was our I'm, song that makes sense i don't know why i'm associating you with carly simon well do, we probably did play it for the father do, do me a favor and you know when you when you talk to the missus later it just for valid, you know, for vindication, ask her if you played. I, I'm telling you, you probably did. We probably okay. did with the okay. with the father yeah, daughter. I, I just I remember that for some reason. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, ours was uh, shameless. Ours was shameless. Oh, the Billy Joel Billy version. Joel. I'm assuming. Billy Joel oh, yeah, shameless. Good, yeah. yeah. Uh, I was, you know, new at the time. Um, so yeah, we 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 went shame. Well, it wasn't really. It wasn't new, new at the time. No, like that was 1989. Yeah, I realized after I said that. Yeah. You were married in. Ten years later, probably. Well, we were yeah, nine years later. Okay. Uh, or no, ten, no, ten years. Ten yeah, years later. Ninety-nine. Yeah. I don't even know how long I've been married. I, it's been a long week, folks. <laughs> um, just you know, I'm misspeaking and, and I'm putting foot in mouth with everything I do here. Um, so anyway, anyway, um, we want to again thank our sponsors and encourage you to please, uh, you know, support them. Um, we still do not have a whole lot of listeners that are, that are enjoying, that are playing with us on Tuesday night's live trivia. I need to do that this week. And, and folks, I, you're missing out. It's free to play. You, you get a $50 prize if you're the top scorer. Um, and, and the rounds are fun. And, and Is it, it's through Zoom? Yeah, it's through Zoom. Do you have to have your camera on? Yes. Uh, well, no, no, no. You don't have to have your camera on. Okay. No, and and in fact, you mute the mic. You you never had to be seen or speak. Or I can just wear my gator to my yeah. eyes. Now I want to maintain a mysterious persona. Yeah. Now you do need two screens because the questions will be on like I I I I go Zoom on my computer, and then it's Crowd Live on on the phone. Gotcha. So the questions appear, and then you answer uh, the questions on on the phone. You can do two tabs on the computer if if you like, but I I I just find the Crowd Live on the phone. Is, is much easier. Um, but yeah, you got nothing to lose. It's, it's a free $50 prize for a good time. Uh, John Hobbity, owner of Affordable Entertainment. I mean, he's great, uh, very charismatic. He's, he's fun. He makes the game enjoyable. Uh, we do have, you know, a group of people who play weekly. I mean, we're, we're regulars and they, uh, you know, we, we've come to know each other. Sometimes we, we talk some smack in the chat, um, but we're generally very supportive of each other. Um, it's, it's just a really good time. And I can't, you know, recommend the game highly enough. I, I really hope our listeners will join in, if only just to get to know, you know, me and, and, and Dave, if he starts, if he if he joins. One of these days, better. I will. Um, but certainly they are sponsoring our, our podcast and, you know, John is a great guy. Um, definitely, if you're able on Tuesday nights, 8 to 10, uh, join in with Affordable Entertainment Live Trivia. Um, it's six rounds and they're thematic. There's always a, a picture round. There's always a an audio clip round. That's usually music. Um, identify the artist or, or the like. And then there's always a video uh, clip round at the end, generally, uh, you know, movies 
uh, movie themed. Um, and in between, does the music is it current or does it stop when I stop listening it, to music? It is <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. Um, there, there are some weeks where it is all, you know, seventies, eighties, nineties. There's some week where it does lend itself to more contemporary. There, there are weeks where, you know, he he delves back a little bit more into the sixties. The occasional fifties number will come up. I, it, you just never know. Right. Okay. Um, but yeah, it, it's definitely and the movie round. I'll tell you what. Very nearly, I always get a perfect score on the movie round. I mean, you especially. I, you you know movies, so you would definitely make up points there. But affordable entertainment live trivia. Please do join us Tuesday nights, eight to ten. And then we also want to thank our other sponsor, Jay Callahan Painting. Um, Jay Callahan Painting, it's a wonderful company. Uh, owner is a very, very close and dear friend uh, from the Cleveland area. She serves the greater Cleveland area. Uh, she will come down to, you know, anywhere really in Northeast Ohio. Um, I realize we have listeners everywhere, but if you are local, please do consider, uh, you know, looking up Jay Callahan Painting if you uh, have any need for, you know, if you have any painting needs, I suppose. Um, sometimes I, I try to sound more intelligent than I can. It just she only, only paints. She only paints houses. Um, yeah, it's it's largely a paint, but she paints interior, exterior. She, your fence she, or deck? Would they? Paint oh yeah, that? yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. She would do that as well. Um, you can just have her paint a room. A Picasso? Trim. Would she paint a Picasso? She probably could. All right. Yeah. Um, I, I think she could pull off. A, I, I think most people could pull off a Picasso. <laughs> um, I, I don't know that she would, you know, try her hand at him. One A necessarily, but um, but yeah, uh, definitely Jay Callahan Painting. uh, You can find her, the company, also on Facebook. And if you have painting needs, uh, prices are affordable. She's so charismatic, very personable. I mean, you can't go wrong. Um, That's it. That's all I got. All right. Uh, So uh, next week is our third and final uh, part of of the television themes trilogy. Uh, so next week it will be Remote Control Part Three, and this time it is animation. We are we are going to give you the thirty greatest animated themes uh, we think of all time. We're gonna uh, have ninety TV songs by the time this is over. Ninety. But think, I mean, if if Spotify actually had that available, That'd be a heck that of a would list. be a wonderful. Yeah. I mean, especially on a road trip. I mean, you could play like name that show I, I don't know I will say there's been some very good discussion um, on Facebook oh, about yeah. some of the TV themes um, and some of the artists and uh, TV artists that tried to become musicians yeah that's that's been a lot of fun yeah. Um, so <laughs> yeah some people have actually defended some artists um, that I don't know that I would have defended uh, I'll defend Linda Carter any day well, that cover. well Linda you know in fairness not only do one of our listeners uh, Mark uh, <laughs> Nixon said that he wants that album now, or, or at the very least, he wants that album cover. I would probably agree with him. Linda Carter was always one of my first, I mean, she was one of my first crushes. But um, in fairness, Linda Carter actually has a beautiful voice, and she's had a very long career, modestly successful. But yeah, she she's one that maybe shouldn't have been linked with the others. Um, Lisa Welchel did, I mean, she was a mouseketeer, yeah. and she, she did, uh, she was nominated for a Grammy for a, a, a Christian music yeah, album. Yeah. Um, but well, I looked up a picture of Sean Cassidy today. Yeah. And I showed it to my wife and I said, can you tell me who this is? And she could not tell me who it is. 
But then I realized it's because she had no idea who Sean Cassidy was. Never watched the Hardy Boys. She never watched. Mystery, she never so. watched it. So. Um, yeah, you'd be amazed at who has recorded albums. I I just do random searches and I find the most bizarre things. So it's like one of my little eccentricities, I suppose. All right, folks, we will see you next week. So until then, I hope that you have a wonderful, uh, wonderful week, and I hope that our our playlist has done its job and and kind of uplifted and inspired you moving forward. Hot funk, cool punk, even if it's old junk. Another mix of memories awaits next Sunday. But for now, please, we we implore you to press pause, lift the needle, and hit eject. But we will see you on the flip side. (laughs) 